Guess what, cinephiles? I've just heard something absolutely mind-blowing. Okay, so you know when you search for something on Netflix, what you get is only a tiny fraction of what Netflix actually has. Netflix actually has more than 18,000 titles globally, but only like 6,000 of those are available in the U.S., so you're missing out on literally thousands of great shows, unless you use ExpressVPN. Yeah, Steve, ExpressVPN is an app that lets you change your online location. So like, for example, if you're looking for stuff that's from another country, you're based here in the United States, you actually change your online location to Australia or the UK so you can control where you want Netflix to think you're located. They have over 100 different locations. They're on ExpressVPN. So you can, you can gain access to like thousands of of new shows no matter where you live. And this works with many other streaming services too there. You guys have Disney Plus or Hulu or Max or the BBC iPlayer, which is the one I use. I know I've used ExpressVPN to connect to Australia because I really love this show called Have You Been Paying Attention? I just put myself in Melbourne and I get access to it. You sign up using your email, but you immediately get access to the stuff. I've used the BBC iPlayer to watch a number of shows there on the BBC like Law & Order UK and others. And sometimes this show Guilty that I love that uh, screens there, when the new seasons pop up, because it takes like four months to get them on PBS, I watch them there using ExpressVPN. And it's incredible how easy it is and how simple it is to use. So why should you use ExpressVPN? Well, first of all, it is super fast. That means you can stream everything in HD with no buffering. It works on any device. So I'm an Apple guy, which means I've already installed it on my Mac, on my iPhone, on my iPad, and on my Apple TV. I'd install it on my Apple Watch if I could, and it encrypts your data. Now, this is hugely important because it protects your privacy and your security to keep you safe from hackers. So stop missing out on great TV and get thousands of new shows with ExpressVPN. We got them to give you guys three extra months of free use when you use our special link, expressvpn.com slash cinephiles. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S to get three extra months completely free. Hi, this is Steve. A few weeks ago, John and I sat down to discuss the 1940 John Ford classic, The Grapes of Wrath, based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel by John Steinbeck. Starring Henry Fonda, Jane Darwell, and John Carradine, The Grapes of Wrath is the story of the Jode family, who are forced off their land and head to California, where they hope to find good jobs and a better life. What they find instead is more hardship, betrayal, and an almost universal indifference. I'm not going to lie to you. This is not an easy movie. But sometimes movies aren't supposed to be easy. Film has a unique power to help us see the world through the eyes of people who are very different from us. And I don't think you can go on this journey with the Jode family without ending up a little more compassionate and maybe a little more aware of the terrible struggles this world often inflicts on our fellow human beings. So if you haven't seen The Grapes of Wrath, you can buy or stream it through our webpage, cinephiles.net. Then tune in on Friday to hear our discussion of it. I think you'll find, as we did, that this story about plain folks struggling against adversity is just as relevant today as it was almost 80 years ago. So, that's John Ford's The Grapes of Wrath, this Friday on The Cinephiles. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world... Oh, I should do a level. Let me get a, let me get a level from you. Yeah, uh, I hate you for making me watch this. I'm so fucking depressed. Okay, good, good. Yeah, I'm good too. All right. <laughs> 
Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, its history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a voiceover artist, uh, occasional actor, reviewer of films, host, writer, producer, all that jazz. Um, and recovering from this movie, from the depression, that literally the depression that is this movie, uh, I, and uh, I'm looking forward to having this conversation with you, Steve, because you suggested this film. I have avoided this film for many, many years, I think for this reason. I knew that it was going to be a very depressing slog and that it was two hours and ten minutes. I couldn't believe that it was that long as well for a film from 1940. Uh, but anyway, hello, everyone. Let's, let's dive you know, there into There is this. no connection between date and length. <laughs> there are long In movies, my mind. There are long movies throughout film history. I mean, if they're shooting, what, like 125 films a year, I figure, you know, they're shooting yeah. them quick. So, yeah. Um, so this is, I, I had this sense, this is the first time you saw this film. Yes, first time I saw it uh, for this podcast. I'd seen the monologue many times, sure. right? And uh, I love You're talking the, about Tom at the end. Yeah, Tom at the end. Wherever there's a, you know, wherever there's, I'll be there. Wherever kids are laughing because uh, they're about to eat when they're hungry, uh, I'll be there. Uh, but, um, and I also uh, was, uh, I bought the uh, CD, the Bruce Springsteen CD, The Ghost of Tom oh, right, Joe, sure. which is all, every track is influenced by the movie. Right. So it's a fantastic uh exploration of the movie in song form and, and once again we buried the lead because we haven't actually said that the oh. film we're talking about is 1940 uh john ford's the grapes of wrath based on the pulitzer prize winning john steinbeck novel yeah um and so i think we've already a answered the question of how did you first come to this film <laughs> yes <laughs> was it last night it was this morning this morning yeah Woke oh up. wow so you're right i'm fresh Wow. Well, I woke up at 7 a.m., uh, watched the movie, then read uh, some analysis, some pieces on analysis of the film, which, uh, you know, I picked up some stuff, but some other stuff, just incredibly, just, just, there's a lot of symbolism in the film that I didn't expect when you're watching it, so no, really it's, appreciated that. It's, it's a deep, it's a deep movie. Yes. Um, for me, I think I watched it in high school the first time. Mm. I've seen it several times since. I read Grapes of Wrath the first time at the end of high school, right? and I've read the book several times since, and including I just read it again to, in preparation for the podcast. Wow. Um, and uh, John Steinbeck's one of my favorite writers, and... This is, you know, you asked me just before we got on mm. mic if I love the film. And it's like one of those, it's, it, you know, it's like loving Schindler's List or something. Yeah, you know what right, I mean? Right, it's right. like, I admire this film and I think this is a powerful film. Mm -hmm. I don't go back to it very often because it's hard. It is. It's a hard movie. And, 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 and I should say like why I, you know, why, because this is my choice like to do this film and I was very adamant about it. Mm -hmm. And it started is that many of you have seen that I was off on a, a cruise in Alaska with my family mm -hmm. and I'm sitting on this cruise ship and I'm thinking about my son who is having this experience that, you know, let's, you know, it's a very privileged experience. Most people don't have the opportunity at seven years old to go on this kind right. of a, a journey. And I'm thinking about the idea of empathy mm -hmm. and the ability to see people who live in a different way than what you live. Mm -hmm. And I worry that my son isn't developing this. And I worry about how we as humans view other humans. Mm -hmm. And it led me to thinking about Grapes of Wrath. And Grapes of Wrath is, you know, they put together lists of of novels that change the world, mm. you know? And it's like, if we look at what are the most important books in changing history, of course, you have the Bible and the mm -hmm. Quran and maybe Darwin's uh, Origin of the Species, things like this. Sure. Um, 
But when you look at novels, there's three or four or five that come up over and over again. And the, probably the most influential of all time is Uncle Tom's Cabin. Right. Uncle Tom's Cabin, you know, was it was and maybe even in some ways to this day, the most popular, most read book of all time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln said this was more responsible for the abolition movement than anything they ever did. Wow. You know, and, and you know, it's a very dated book in a lot of ways and there are mm -hmm. things we could say about it, but sure. at the time, this is a book that changed the world. Um, another one is Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. The Jungle, yeah, I remember that one. You know, and this that's a book that just made see, see the meatpacking industry yeah. and labor and immigrants in this completely new mm -hmm. way. And Uncle Tom's Cabin made people see humanized slaves mm -hmm. in a way that they hadn't been. And once people had read that book, um, they couldn't look at slaves in bondage the yeah. same way they had before yeah and another might be all quiet on the western front oh yeah um and one of them is of course grapes of wrath mm -hmm. and as i was thinking about it i was thinking of how hard it is in the way our society works today to feel deep empathy for people that are really different from us and uh -huh. that's what led me to thinking about you know what i want to do the grapes of wrath okay Understood. and and it's not easy no. in, a, in a lot of ways so um, let's start off with the book. Yeah. Obviously, this is a book by John Steinbeck. Uh, and he'd already had some big hits with uh, Tortilla Flats and Of Mice and Men. Yeah. And uh, I read Of Mice and Men like junior high. Did you read it? Oh, yeah. yeah. Of course. Did so, scenes from it? Did, yeah, night. absolutely. Yeah, I did too, I think. Yeah. Um, and, and because it was already a big success, he's already been investigated by J. Edgar Hoover as a possible communist. Of course. Um, and... And this whole thing started when he wrote some articles for the San Francisco News about the Dust Bowl. Mm -hmm. And of course, the Dust Bowl happened in, during the Depression when farmers basically lost all their land to drought and huge winds. And there, and so suddenly, there, in addition to the economic crisis, there was this huge agricultural crisis right. happening. And he went down to uh, a government camp that was in Bakersfield and started to talk to all the migrant workers that were there. And that's what uh, started the book. And the big thing I think for Steinbeck is that he's the children of child of Irish immigrants. Mm. And so his family had come from Ireland 50 years earlier right. to escape the potato famine. And so very much this, even though this was the story of Americans traveling from one part of the country to another, it mirrored very much his family's story of his family starving, getting mm -hmm. kicked off the land and suddenly going to this place called America, where everything, all their problems were supposed to be solved. Right. And of course, all their problems weren't solved. No. And so he felt a deep connection to this. And he wrote the book really quickly. In just a few months, he wrote wow. this incredible book. Wow. And the book is gorgeous. But... Mm -hmm. And doesn't have a tacked on ending to make you feel happy. Well, <laughs> well, where do you hear how the book ends? Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> because the book has a different ending from the film. That's what I'm saying. It does not have that tacked on human yeah. spirit ending. Right, right. Um, and the book was a huge, huge hit, massive hit, one of the biggest books of all time. In fact, I think it came out the same year as Gone with the Wind. Oh, okay. Uh, which is sort of fascinating because Gone with the Wind was made into a movie in 39. This right. is 1940. But it was also banned all over the country. For some, one is for content in particular, the end of the book, which we'll talk about when mm -hmm. we get there. Um, but the other reason, it was banned in California and Oklahoma because they didn't think it made their states look good, which is certainly true. I love freedom of speech. Yeah. Isn't it nice? Yeah. Um, I, this, <laughs> this is the thing to me is that, you know, it's like we shouldn't be afraid of ideas. Right. Well... You know, only I think only um, people are afraid of ideas only if it affects their bottom dollar. That's when people get afraid of ideas, when they see this possibility of their um, status being uh, unsettled or changed or 
lost. So all of a sudden ideas become dangerous because ideas are what change the world. Absolutely. But I think, I think that's the number one reason. I think there are other reasons too. Well, people Mm -hmm. are creative ideas, but I don't want to go off on that. On that. 20 minute tangent. Yeah. Um, uh, the way this movie gets picked to be made is hilarious, which is that the Hayes office, which we talked about before, that's the censorship office. They go, we don't like want anyone to do this movie. This movie is communist ideas. This movie is it's got some racy elements. Like we don't want anyone to do it. And they hear a rumor that Daryl Zanuck at Fox wants to do it. Now Daryl Zanuck has never heard of this movie. He doesn't know the book at all. He gets a call from the Hayes office saying you really shouldn't do this movie. And he goes, "What is this book?" <laughs> and so he buys it because he doesn't like to be told what to do. Of course not. And what's interesting about this is he's a conservative. He's a lifetime Republican. He's consistently anti-labor. So why he chooses to do this lefty book is sort of, and maybe it's just out of being pissed off at the Hayes office. Yeah, I don't maybe. know. Um, and uh, he buys it for $100,000. And the first thing he tells the screenwriter is don't pull any punches. Wow. You know, that's an amazing thing. And, and they really don't. I mean, there are things that aren't in the the movie that are in the book, which is normal and for various reasons, but it doesn't pull punches. It's very much what the book was. But the big scare was the number one investor in Fox, in 20th Century Fox, is the Chase Bank. And they go, well, this is not nice to bankers. And so he calls up the chairman of the board of Chase and the chairman of the board says, you know, my wife just read that book and loved it and she gave it to me and I can't put it down. This is a great book. You have to do it. Wow. So the chairman of Chase said, go make the movie. And so... He brings on John Ford. John Ford, also really a conservative, mm-hmm. also anti-labor, and yet he steps into this movie. And here's the interesting thing. He had the same connection to it as Steinbeck, which is he's also the child of Irish immigrants. And he also saw these same parallels between his family story. And so it became a deeply personal story for him, even though the politics of the movie are not his. Yeah, I find that troubling, to be honest with you. I don't think it matters that's the thing about the movie. To me, I think I've, I've read a number of anal- analytical pieces and they're like, oh, it's a lefty film. It's a lefty film. I don't think it's a lefty film. I think it's a film about humanity, about yeah. like there are terrible bosses. There are people that exploit workers. There are people that are cruel. There are, And then there are people that are good and nice. And there are people that set up things through the government that help people. So like to me, the, the, the film captures all of that. I don't think it necessarily leans one way or the other politically to be honest with you to me it's a it's a human story more than anything else rather than a political story and yeah there's that exchange what's a red i keep hearing this thing about red i know that but like to me throughout the whole movie it just strikes as a human story it's very relatable you go all the way back to the bible and exodus and the jews leaving that well, it's it's there's it's, clear parallel well that's what i'm saying it's, yeah the whole it, it's every i think everyone's been through that for the most part like that idea of leaving home to go find something else I mean, a lot of people go through that. So to me, it's more of a universal story than a necessary left or right story. So I understand the 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 uh, the argument about it. But for me, I I just didn't feel it did that either way. Or the other. So that's that's all, you know, that's for me. I think I think there's like some lefty frosting, if you can call it oh, frosting on this cake. OK, I think I think I think <laughs> the cake is human. The, but and there's yeah. a little bit of lefty frosting. I think I think I'll take that. But I think your statement is exactly right. Is this is and this is the power of this or the jungle or right or um, uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin yep. is that this is a human story. Human. This is a story about people struggling. Right. Good human, ordinary people struggling to get by. Yes. Um, uh, and the movie is shot for seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. Shot in 43 days. Wow. This is not a huge production in any way. Um, you want to get in the film? Yeah, let's do it. 
Um, so we start with the, the leitmotif for most of the film, which is Red River Valley. Mm -hmm. And the composer is Alfred Newman. And this is the thing we saw when we talked about The Searchers, mm -hmm. which is that John Ford likes to use these folk themes as really the the backbone of his film and this one for this one it's red river valley and he likes to use solo people like he likes to, yeah like the the way john wayne is stands in that doorway is very in the searchers is very correlative to seeing the first image of henry fonda tom joad walking down that road i never thought about it i couldn't agree more that's yeah. a that's a great point it's and it's just beautifully framed yeah and it's so interesting like the the the, the way this film is shot is so painterly mm -hmm. and gorgeous and it's on a much smaller scale than the searchers mm -hmm. you know and it's interesting to see him use that incredible eye he has on a much smaller scale and of course helping him do this is our friend greg toland greg cinematographer Tolan. this is the one year before he shot citizen kane yeah. this is arguably the greatest cinematographer working and man do you see it in this film and he didn't get nominated for an oscar for this nope. and i think it's because people were watching this film and didn't understand the cinematography that he was doing because it looks like oh you just set up the camera and you shot these scenes but no the light he's using in certain moments and certain scenes really does bring you into the film so powerfully and viscerally and i think people just didn't catch that the first time they watched it well th this is what, I'm glad you said that. This is what John Ford said about it. He said, it's beautifully photographed, but nothing was beautiful to shoot. Yeah. It was the way he shot it. Yeah. And that's what's remarkable about it is that these aren't the gorgeous landscapes and the incredible colors or the, right. you know, or the, 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 the huge mansions of Citizen Kane or anything like this. Yeah. This is you're in a shack, mm -hmm. you know, and yet it's still remarkable how he shoots it. Mm -hmm. um, and as you say, we start with Tom Joad, Henry Fonda. Uh, and by the way, Zanuck didn't want Henry Fonda. No. Zanuck wanted Tyrone Power. Did he really? Yeah. Oh, I've read it was Jimmy Stewart, too. He was oh, in line. Yeah. That, and that, it uh, makes sense. Beulah Bondi was in line to play yeah, I saw Mom, that, yeah. And uh, I think Walter Brennan was in charge to play the dad. Or was, oh, really? Right, oh, that makes sense, right. too. But I know the Jimmy Stewart part is right. Um, yeah. It's funny. And Jimmy Stewart and Henry Fonda, they were best friends. Um, and it's interesting that Fonda got the part. And I can't picture anybody other than Fonda. I really couldn't either. No. Um, and he, he's walking down a street and he comes to a truck stop and he wants to get a ride with this truck driver. And this great first moment, which is actually really good in the book, where the truck driver says, points to this sticker that says, you know, can't take on riders. And Fonda's response is, Sure, I see it. But a good guy don't pay no attention to what some heel makes him stick on his truck. And in and, and, and the book, it kind of goes into sort of that, that that's a perfect logic trap because he's saying, if you, if you, if you stand by it, the truck driver is saying, yes, this, this guy in some big business is telling me what to do. Right. And so he does get the ride of the truck and immediately the truck driver is scoping him out. Yeah. He's looking him up and down, you know, and Fonda's wearing kind of a new suit mm -hmm. and a new hat and new shoes. And, and he's, the, the truck driver starts asking him like, you got hands like you swung a pickaxe. Which, of course, what he's really saying is, have you been in jail? Right. And finally, Fonda just goes, Why don't you get at it, buddy? Get at what? You know what I'm talking about. You've been going over me ever since I got in. Why don't you ask me where I've been? Well, I don't stick my nose in nobody's nah, business. not much. Well, I stay in my own yard. That big nose of yours has been going over me like a sheep in a vegetable patch. Well, I ain't keeping it a secret. I've been in the penitentiary. Been there four years. Anything else you want to know? He's pretty belligerent for a guy who's getting a free ride. He is. Yeah, this is what he's a troubling uh, protagonist throughout the whole film for me. Yeah, because he he is a guy who gets himself into these situations and then becomes almost abrasive and at times feels like he deserves certain things 
just for being alive. So it's it's a great expo- yet in some other moments he has because he's on a journey. Yeah. He not just going from place to place. He's on a personal journey himself from the Tom Joe that is in prison, was in prison to the Tom Joe now, where do I belong in the world now? And so you see this from the beginning uh, as he's walking on this journey and then jumps onto the truck. And I can't remember the name of the cafe, but the cafe has some symbolism in the name of the cafe. I don't have it in my notes. Yeah, yeah. I there's, remember, yeah. There's something about the cafe and the symbolism of it. Uh, I, I, I know the song playing was a tisket, a task. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't remember actually <laughs> the name of the cafe. Well, and the thing you say about Tom is true, is that this is a man struggling with his anger. Yes. Is that, and, and the, the theme of, are you going to become, as Ma'll say later, yeah. mad mean, mm-hmm. you know, is throughout the film. And at what point is anger appropriate and what point is it not appropriate? Right. And there are lots of times in the film where anger is clearly appropriate yeah. and Tom has to shut it down. And other times where it just comes out, yeah. you know, and that's something he's struggling with. And as he's leaving the truck, he finally lays on him what he did. You're about to bust a gut to know what I've done, ain't you? Well, I had a guy to let you down. Homicide. 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 Uh, and then he goes and, and uh, keeps walking. And we hear that, that he's heading back to find his, his family, that his family's got a piece of land right. that he's sharecropping. And this is an important piece of information. And he's, as he's walking back, he finds a guy sitting under a tree singing, My Savior, My Savior. Mm, my Savior now. And they say hello. And this is the preacher, John Carradine. So good in this film, man. His performance in this movie is so strange. Mm-hmm. I mean, John Carradine has always been a strange actor. He's yeah. always a kind of a weird spin on everything. And this character is fascinating. And fascinating in the book, too. It's very Carradine and Houston are very correlative to me as actors. Mm. John Carradine and John Houston. Just they have well, that voice. Yeah. The yeah. voice and the long, lanky body. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the just simplicity of their performances, yet uh the simplicity of presentation, but the complexity of the performance is right. fantastic to me for both of them. And we find out that this guy used to be a preacher. Oh, yeah. And that, what kind of preacher was he, Steve? Well, he was the, you know, sounds like the big tent revival preacher. Yes. And he, you know, there was speaking in tongues some and would even walking say on your evangelical, hands. Some would even and, say. and he kind of, and he baptized Tom. Yeah. And Tom just remembers him as it seems like in the past life was a bigger than life loud, evangelical, the spirit was deep inside him, preacher, and then he's lost it. Ain't you young Tom Joe, old Tom's boy? Yeah, I'm on my way home now. Well, I do declare. I baptize you, son. Ain't you the preacher? Used to be. Not no more. Yeah. And that's sort of a... This is a, you know, as we said, this is a this is a movie filled with metaphors. This is about a spiritual journey. Yeah. Exodus is very clear reference in this mm-hmm. and the idea of being lost in the desert and not knowing where you belong. Right. And he is a man who once thought he knew exactly what was right and what was wrong yeah. and has now lost that. Well, this film is full of displaced characters who can't find home anymore. Yes. Home, they've been kicked out of their homes, either physically or emotionally, spiritually or mentally, right? And uh, you hear this preacher does some very uncomfortable monologue about the fact that he was using God to seduce these women in his congregation. Why, at my meetings, I used to get the girls a glory shot until they about pass out. Then I go to comfort them. I'd always end up by loving them. I'd feel bad and pray and pray, but it didn't do no good. Next time, do it again. Listen, this is 1940. Yep. It's very open what he's talking about here. And I found that to be really fascinating. Yep. 
Well, and that event, because he said he would he would get the spirit mm-hmm. so deep in these women that they'd almost lose control, and then he'd take them out and he'd love them up. And he'd love them up. Yep. And that, but that is the thing that made him lose the spirit, right? Because he went, he prayed, and he he knew this was wrong. Mm-hmm. He prayed and he prayed to not do it, and that didn't. And then he kept on doing it. And then he asked this sort of question. I asked myself, what is this here called Holy Spirit? Maybe that's love. Why I love everybody so much, I'm fit to bust sometimes. So maybe there ain't no sin, there ain't no virtue. It's just what people does. Some things folks do is nice and some ain't nice. And that's all anybody got the right to say. Right. It's a, he's come down from a holy, I know the truth level to a, mm-hmm. man, maybe we can't say anything. Maybe right. we got to understand what people are. You yeah. know, maybe it's about actions more than words in a church service, like that kind of thing, you know? Well, and it's also about people are, humans are humans yeah. and they're going to be flawed and filled with gray areas. And that's, that's what it is. Yeah. And, and, and it's interesting. His, his philosophy is going to evolve. Yes. Like the guy we find squatting on the side of the road with Tom is very different from the guy at the end of the film. Mm-hmm. They decide they're going to walk on together. And, and Tom says, look, you know, and it, he asked Tom where he's been. And Tom's like, don't you know? Haven't you heard? It's been in the papers. No, never. What? I've been in the penitentiary for four years. Killed a guy in a dance hall. We was drunk. He got a knife in me and I laid him out with a shovel. Knocked his head plumb to squash. And he got sentenced to seven years and it was short because it was self-defense. And now he's out in four on parole, and parole is very important. Yeah. What's interesting, Steve, is what he talks about, the na- the, the knife in him, right? But he says he turned um, the dude's head into mush. Oh, yeah. So what does that tell you? The anger within Tom was always there. Oh, yeah. So so this thing that he's negotiating has been in him for a while. It isn't the prison that turned him angry. It's prison that may have exposed it and given him more uh, reason to be angry, but he was, he already had this anger inside him because just getting stabbed, you hit a guy with shovels enough to knock him off you to turn it into mush means repeated hits. Not necessarily. He kills a guy with one shot in the, in the end of the movie with a club. Yeah. 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 I mean, you hit a guy. Yeah, with... but he hit him, but he didn't turn his face into mush. Well, we don't know. Mush is a whole nother ball. Sure, I understand. Well, I don't know that he hit him repeatedly. I don't think he did. I would say yes. But I don't have to agree. Yeah. I'm I'd trying to remember mush. if it says more in the book, but I don't think mm. it does. I, I always got the sense that he just swung and hit him as hard as he possibly could. Mm-hmm. But this is the thing, too, is like he's very calm about the guy got a knife in me. Yeah. You know, and so I did this. There's a very sort of. There's a practicality in the way he talks about it that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they go off and walk together, and uh, they're heading towards the Jode farm. We see the name Jode on a, a mailbox, and the farmhouse is empty. Yeah. And the wind is picking up, and it is gray. So they get to this house that's abandoned. They go inside, and this is creepy. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you imagine coming home to your apartment or coming home to your mom's house? That's the real thing. Can you imagine going home to your mom's house and it's dusty and dark and there's nobody there and you haven't heard anything? And it's late at night. Middle of the night. Yeah. No power. And of course, there's no power. There's no running water. This isn't. And he hasn't had letters from his family while he was four years in prison because they're not the right and kind. Nope. You know. Or the kissing kind. Or the kissing kind. We find that out later. And they light a match 
And I just have to say, the lighting in this scene is remarkable. It's so good. Because film speed isn't fast enough at this point to shoot by candlelight. Right. This is all electric lights. Mm -hmm. And the lighting that they do to have that flickering candlelight and the eye light, which is that little sparkle of light in your eyes, just perfect in this yeah. scene, is amazing. And yeah. this is where you see the genius of Greg Tolkien. Well, it also feels very noir-ish as well in its approach to these kinds of things. Because there's totally. just enough light as you're entering into each mm -hmm. room. Just to give you enough of an idea that there's a room you're walking into, but not enough of an idea of what's in this room that you're walking into. And I like that a lot. Well, and there's, you know, he had a big family. Yeah. And to come home and go and he finds like one of his mom's old shoes. Right. And something that belonged to him. And it's just like, are they dead? Yeah. Something terrible must have happened for them to be gone. And then they find Muley. Muley? Where's my folks, Muley? Why, they gone. I know they're gone, but where are they gone? So uh, this actor, his name is John Kalen, yeah. or Quaylen, and his performance is remarkable. Incredible. Yeah. Incredible, Steve. What he's able to do with the limited amount of screen time to reach the emotional levels that he does, both in the flashback scene yep. and in this scene with, uh, with uh, uh, Tom and, uh, and uh, uh, what's the preacher's name again? Casey. Casey. Tom and Casey is really powerful. Yeah. And, and, and he is this scared mm -hmm. man, withered in the shadows. And they, we find out now they've gone to Uncle John's place, mm -hmm. which is a few miles away, and that they had to go. Um, and Tom's reaction is, we've been here 50 years. Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, can you imagine your family has owned a piece or been on a piece of land for 50 years? Yeah. Why would they have to go? And the reason is, everybody's got to go. Mm -hmm. Everyone's going to California. And except for Muley, Muley is staying. Mm -hmm. And we hear the blowing of the wind as Tom asks what happened, and he says it was the wind. Listen, that's someone done it. The dusters, they started anyways. Blowing like this year after year, blowing the land away, blowing the crops away, blowing us away now. And then we go into a flashback. Yeah. And we see Muley in the middle of the daytime with his family, and there's a man in a nice car. Yeah. And he says, you got to get off on the land. Yeah. Back to the matter, Muley. After what them dusters done to the land, the tenant system don't work no more. They don't even break even, much less show a profit. By one man and a tractor can handle 12 or 14 of these places. This is an interesting exchange, too, because the, the guy isn't necessarily abrasive about the situation. No. He's doing his job. Uh, and if you really want another companion piece for this uh, uh, film, you listen to John Cougar Mellencamp's Scarecrow album. It's basically mm. the same thing of what was happening during the 80s to a lot of the farmers, why they did Farm Aid, why they were inspired to do Farm Aid. Right. John Cougar covers that. It's very similar to this. But anyway, like in this scene back and forth, the guy's saying, I'm just doing my job. And he starts telling him the chain of command all the way to the banks. And I think this is where you allude to the Chase Bank situation. This is where we first hear right. that the bankers are the villains, uh, but even they aren't necessarily the villains because it's just human beings doing their jobs. Everywhere up the line, it's human beings doing their jobs. Well, and this is a frame that exists even more in the book is oh, this yeah. we're looking for someone to blame yes someone to talk to and the answer is there's no one right because you go to the company and the company's got a board and the board is controlled by the bank and the bank is somewhere else mm -hmm. and the bank has a president but the president has to listen to the board and then they have stockholders and the stockholders are just folks right and what do you expect anybody to do right and we see this you know whether it's the factory that got shut down today or the coal mine that got shut down today mm -hmm. or you know uh, businesses that are downsizing or shipping, you know, it's like at every point you have people whose lie, or you think about in 2008 during the economic collapse mm -hmm. and there are all these people losing their houses who are trying to pay their mortgage and, and you go, well, who do we blame? Yeah. Who do we? And the answer is there's no one. 
Right. It's it's the system is to blame. The system, absolutely. You know, and the system does not care. Um, and the, the scene, you know, that Muley's trying to argue, it's like, no, I was born on this land. Well, I'm right here to tell you, mister, there ain't nobody going to push me off my land. My grandpa took up this land 70 years ago. My pa was born here. We was all born on it. And some of us was killed on it. The, the, the guy in the car drives away and Muley goes down on the ground and the, <sighs> clutches the dirt and says, That's what makes it iron. Being born on it and working on it and dying, dying on it. And not no piece of paper with a writing on it. <laughs> and the thing I was thinking about as he's holding the dust was I went, well, who, who was Grandpa 70 years ago? Right. And I went, you know who it was? It was those cowboys that John Ford was filming in the 1860s. Yeah. This is Ethan and the Searchers. Right. You know what I mean? That's the generation. That's the ancestors of these guys, the people who went out and whatever we think about what they did exactly, fought for this land yeah. and built houses and built lives. And at some point, and the government, and America made this promise of this is, you're going to be, uh, you know, you're going to take the land in these huge land sales. Yeah. And at some point they had five bad seasons in a row and they had to sell out to a bank or to a company. And instead of being the owners of the land, they became sharecroppers and tenant farmers. And that meant they lost control. And then the next time this big thing hits, which is this dust bowl in the 1930s, yeah. not their land anymore. Right. You know, and the connection between what the classic John Ford era and these grapes of wrath folks to me was very profound watching it this time. In a way to me, when I, I watch it through a window, Steve, because I don't have this inclination to have land. I don't have this inclination right. to own property. It's not, it's never been within me. Do you know what I'm saying? And I see other people that like, really, it's important to them to have a piece of property that's theirs or a house that's theirs or land or acres. And and I respect that. And so when I hear, when I see this performance, it's, it really hammers home how much people feel a connection to the land, you know, how important it is to them, you know, to know at least I have this, everything else can fall apart, right. but I got this. And now when you take this away from me, do what do I Who have? Are they? They're disconnected. Right. Well, I think throughout he goes insane. I imagine to a degree insane. Yeah. It, yeah. I mean, he's somewhat touched, <laughs> touched yes. um, throughout the vast majority of human history. Uh, the connection to the land was paramount, you yeah. know, 85, 90% of the population worked the land. Yeah. And so to own a piece of land, that meant stability, that meant health, that meant you could feed your family. And it's only in the last hundred years that that's been severed for most of humanity. Now. Right, right. You know, now it's like 80, 90% doesn't work on the land. It's like, I think it's like two or 3% of our population work on farms. Yeah. Super small. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason that the percentage is so small is what Muley talks about next, which is that the tractors are coming, mm -hmm. you know, because the, the, re the reality is, is where a whole family was needed to work 40 acres. Now one tractor can do what 15 families could do. Yeah. And so it doesn't make sense to have these tenant farmers anymore. It's not efficient. What happened? They come. They come and pushed me off. They come with the cats. The what? The cats, the caterpillar tractors. And so there's this montage that we see of all these caterpillar tractors going by, and they feel like the coming of an army. You know, they feel like some malevolent, destructive technological force. Yeah, and I think John Ford does a great job in this sequence because you see the track, the uh, 
what do they call the 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 tread of the tractor yeah. in superimposed in, superimposed yeah. and that is the march of time it's the march of progress just stomping on the little guy stomping on the people who are in the way it just keeps going progress just always uh, always runs over the little guy who does not get out of the way or convert well, and if you look at what's happening today, yeah. is that through automation and yep. is that, you know, factory workers and uh, and continues to be farmers mm-hmm. and coal miners and all sorts of people in all sorts of industries, even coming up to people, you know, people that used to be in sort of white collar or blue yeah. collar industries, yeah. like legal secretaries and things like that, they're getting wiped out by automation. The, the, some, of the, some of the statistics say that 10 times as many jobs are being lost in this country to automation than they are to outsourcing. Wow. You know? And so this same thing is happening, which is a company looks at the system yeah. and they go, hmm, I could have a hundred people, you know, hundred people in this warehouse moving packages around for Amazon, right. or I could have robots or I could have two robots do it. Right. And robots don't need healthcare and they don't need uh, benefits and they don't take sick days. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly a whole bunch of people are going out of work. Right. You know, and that's what's happening right at this very moment. And that's always a struggle, right? Humanity versus uh, profit, humanity versus technology. This is the struggle that's constant throughout the history of our capitalist uh, nation and society. What responsibility do the business owners have to their employees yep. if they can make more money without but them? Without them? Yep. Right, exactly. Well, this is what's this is this is why I went. We need to do grapes of wrath. Yeah, you know. And the next thing that Muley tells about is the moment that the tractor came yeah. for his house, and he's got a shotgun out, and he goes, "I'm going. You stop. I'm going to blow your head off." Yeah. And the guy pulls up his goggles, and it's one of them. Well, you're Joe Davis's boy. I don't like for nobody to draw a bead on me. Then what are you doing a thing like this for against your own people? Three dollars a day. That's what I'm doing it for. Because he's got kids to feed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's got a family, you know? And so, and he's working, and this is what we're going to see throughout the film, yeah. is like there's sort of the, let's all stick together and try to protect each other, or I got to feed my kids. Yeah, throughout you know? the whole movie, throughout this the is, whole is, film. Is, is this whole idea of like me versus everyone else, you know? And we see it, see it multiple times. When they get to that camp and the, the breakfast scene, well, what about us? You know, we, we need to get fed. Do I need to feed all these other kids who are hungry? The humanity of that all, you know what I'm saying? All through the whole film. And that's yeah. why he doesn't shoot. He says, what are you going to do? You're going to hang by a tree. And if you get away, they're going to come chase you and come get all the, and, gonna, and then somebody's going to come and replace Some of the me guys tomorrow. Come tomorrow and yeah, do the same it's thing. It's not going to be a difference. Yeah. And so they lower their guns and that tractor blows right through the house and knocks down their house. It just keeps going. It just keeps going. Yeah. To the next one. That shot of knocking down the house, and it, and the camera's on Muley and his family, and it pans down to his shadows. Yes, up to the knockdown as the the tractor knocks down the house, goes back to them and back down to their shadows, mm-hmm. and it is profound. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, we're sitting right now in my house. I've lived here for twenty one years, right? And can I imagine? Like I think about if a tractor just came and knocked down this house, yeah. And it's like it's, matter of factly. Yeah, no emotion, no ceremony, nothing. And it's like, it's not just that it's a building and that I've lived here a lot or it's it's a financial investment or anything like that. It's filled with memories. Of course. You know what I mean? And this guy's house, that was three generations that lived in this house, lived and died there. And now it's knocked over and it's gone. Yeah, and the use of shadows here is really important. I think it happens throughout the movie. In essence, it shows you people becoming a shadow of their former selves, like the change that's happening because of all this stuff. And we see more shadows later on in the film as these uh, momentous uh, situations happen to these yep. people. And Julie's family, they all picked up and they moved to California and he couldn't go. Nope. Couldn't leave the land. No. And, and he said, I love this line. He says, I used to tell myself that 
I was looking out for things so that when the folks come back, everything would be all right. When I knowed it wasn't true, there ain't nothing to look out for. And ain't nobody ever coming back. They're gone. And me, I'm just a whole graveyard ghost. That's all in the world I am. Which is really what he is, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, that idea of he's trying to hold on to keep a past alive that that's dead. Yeah. There's just no way to keep, you know, he's a graveyard ghost. Yeah. Yeah, it's mute, mute, and then he cries. Yeah. And, and man, Muley's performance, and we're never, this is it, we're not going to see yeah. him much after this scene, and he just, it's powerful. Mm -hmm. um, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Hello, Cinephiles fans. You know, we all kind of walk around with these stressors, big, small, medium in our lives that are triggered sometimes by frustrations at work or frustrations at our job or just frustrations overall about our life. Because sometimes you know this, if you compare, you despair and you just want to live a life that's a little bit more clean and accepting of yourself and a little more open to receiving positive messages for yourself so you can have that life that you want to live and have that great work-life balance. And it's not always easy. And for me, for years and years, I thought all of this stress, all of this hardship, I had to just carry on my own, that this is what it meant to be a man. And it was finally getting therapy where I realized like, oh, I don't have to carry that stuff. There's a place where I can unburden myself and actually get advice and guidance about how to deal with it better in the future. Yeah, Steve, you and I have spoken very proudly about how therapy has helped both of, both of us deal with our stressors in our lives. And if any of you are listening to us who are thinking of starting therapy, well, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and it's suited to your schedule. All you have to do is to fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge if things aren't working out, which I think is a great benefit. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Cinephiles today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S. And they go, okay, well, we're going to stay here. We'll go to Uncle John's in the morning. And then they hear something and there's a car coming. And they, and Muley's like, we got to go hide. And they go out of the house and hide. And this idea of, for Tom of hiding in the bushes next to his own house. Right. You know, and comes up as some kind of security guards or mm -hmm. watchmen and they're looking for Muley. Yeah. And Tom get and they break a window in Tom's house and Tom gets to sit in the bushes and watch. It's a strange moment. Yeah. Um, and again, there's beautiful eyelight and and Tom's line is anybody ever told me I'd be hiding out at my own place. And, and you talk about Tom's anger. Mm -hmm. And this is another moment where I think he's right on the edge of going out there and, oh, and fighting these guys. Absolutely. And he holds it in, you know. Next morning, Tom and Casey are walking. There's some beautiful, beautiful shots mm -hmm. of them. Just these are where you see that John Ford eye. Yeah. Um, and they come to a house and inside we see Ma and a family yeah. giving grace. Grandma and grandpa are arguing. And this is, you know, I mean, this is old time Oklahoma, mm -hmm. you know, somewhat uh it's a certain it's a certain kind of dialogue. Yeah. I seen him gobbling away like an old pig. Why don't you keep your eyes shut during grace, you old 
most of which is right out of the book. And they're talking about these handbills that everyone's gotten that says there's 800 jobs for people to come pick fruit out in California. And this is what they're holding on to. This is the future. Mm -hmm. And grandpa's got this whole idea. He's going to pick some grapes and he's going to smush them all over his face and he's going to fill a bathtub with them. And, and this is, you know, they're talking about the land of milk and honey. Yeah. This is where they're going to go. And Ma turns and sees Tom. Yeah. It's weird that he doesn't knock on the door. It's weird that he's just standing out there. I think Almost so like too. he's playing guard. Almost like he's guarding the place. Well, and they're not looking in. Like, it, no. it seems strange. Yeah. Because in the book, by the way, Pa sees him first, and they come up with this whole oh. thing to play a big joke on Ma about... Uh, and, and Pa's character is bigger in the book. Okay. Um, and what happens more in the book than in the movie is in the book, Pa's in charge at the beginning mm. and really retreats. And you see Mom becomes, Ma becomes stronger and stronger until she is who she is at the end. Interesting. Which I actually think is better. Yeah. In the book, she's already pretty much in charge right. in a lot of ways. You mean the film? And I'm sorry, in the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, correct. She is. Uh, and the actress is Jane Jane Darwell. Mm -hmm. Her performance is remarkable. That's why she won the Oscar. Man. Yeah, it's yeah. it's an, it, she sees she sees Tom and just says, "Thank God," you know. Mm -hmm. And and her first concern is, "You didn't bust out, right?" Um, <laughs> and he's like, "No, he's paroled." <laughs> this could every single person that yeah. sees Tom is go, "You didn't bust out? Did you bust out?" <laughs> There's some pride in that. Absolutely, yeah. there is some anti-authoritarian pride. Yeah. Um, and it's funny. I noticed particularly when he sees Ma Henry Fonda's smile. Mm. That is a beautiful, beautiful and, and thing. Ford lingers on oh, his yeah. face until he says "Ma," and it's. I yeah. was wondering. That, that's why you're a movie star, man. Yeah. You just there's the camera loves you in yep. that shot. Absolutely, they love him. Um, and. Um, they don't hug. They don't like embrace. She shakes his hand. They they're not an emotional, emotion. Uh, they're not a family that shows their emotion. Right. Easily. They're not demonstrative. Yeah, they're not demonstrative. Um, and the first thing she asks is, "Did they hurt you, son? Did they hurt you and make you mean mad? Mad, ma? Sometimes they do. No, ma. I was at first, but not no more. And and then she pushes it. It's like because some people you hurt them enough, yeah. and they become mean mad." They hurt you again, and you get meaner and meaner till you ain't no boy no man anymore, just a walking chunk of mean mad. Did they hurt you that way, son? No, Ma, don't worry about that. Well, I, I don't want no mean son. Um, and this is really an important theme is this because because the thing that's hard about this film is, well, when do you fight back? Right. You know, there's a certain time where it's like you should. Yeah. Um, but what do you think he means? What do you think she means by this? Sexual assault? Do you think she she means? I mean, I'm sure it was happening in prisons in the 40s. I know. I don't. That that never occurred to me that really? that's what she. I think I, it could. I'm not saying you're wrong. Um, no, I think she's. I think she's talking about his soul. Mm -hmm. Did they hurt you in the in your soul? Mm. But I, I I mean, you you really think it's sexual assault? Yeah, I I do. It, it struck me this this is their way of talking all around it. Oh, they wouldn't talk directly at it. That's certainly true. Yeah, something happened to you in prison, like to turn you mean, and you come out and you're a shell of yourself. You're just mean and you're angry at the world. You know, like what is that? Right. So yeah. Well, and you know, I'm sure there's other. Th obviously, there's other things happening. I mean, you know, in terms of prison population today, that we have the same concern mm -hmm. of: does prison make people more? criminal or less criminal right and there's sometimes you have some experience that are so painful and horrible in prison that you come out as ma says mean mad yeah and then and then the whole and then the whole family sees him yeah and everyone of course asks him if he busts out and they're all excited to see him and we see rosa sharon who is uh, mm. pregnant and her husband that's tom's sister we see the little kids grandma and grandpa are happy to see him and then a big truck pulls up and that's al and that's how they're gonna leave we find out that this truck cost 
uh, $75 out of the total $200 they raised from selling every single thing they had. Wow. So they they have maybe 125 bucks mm-hmm. to make it with 10 people all the way to California. Yeah. Now, obviously, that's a lot more than $125 a day. But yes. But it's not much. Yeah. Um, and as they're talking, a, a, a nice-looking car pulls up and calls up Uncle John, who's sort of a withered, small mm-hmm. man who seems like he's three-quarters broken already. Yeah. And he says, We'll be coming through here tomorrow, you know. I know. We be out. We'd be out by sunup. Because they're going to knock that house down too. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're packing the car in the middle of the night. And we go into Ma who's throwing things into the fire. Oh, man. This scene is uh, very heartbreaking. You know, it is. looking at the mementos, remembering a different time. Yep. The the uh, World Fair little right. uh, sculpture. Then, But the earrings moment is the moment, man. That's the moment when she hang, puts both the earrings on her ears, looks into that reflection of the mirror and remembers, you know. And maybe another director would have done a flashback to her, like dancing in some cl- with a yeah. nice dress on. And but it's the, all there. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, all, all there. it's all there. It's all there. In her face. It's all there in her face. Yeah. I mean, and, and again, it's this... You can only take what you can fit on that truck. Yeah. You know? And it's interesting. So um, we were watching. I, wa- I made Jax watch some of it. I, I didn't make him watch what all of it. What was wrong with you? All right. Well, because this is what I, I was thinking about. I it. I'm a man of age. Um, and he said, why, why is he throwing things in the fire? And I said, well, maybe she doesn't want anyone else to see them when they have to leave them behind. Well, yeah. You know, well, is that they're private. Yeah. And some this of it is, is Tom Joad's uh, clippings. Right. Going clippings to prison, going to so, jail. Yeah. yeah. And then we're getting on the truck and we can't find grandpa. Um, and... Uh, and as they're starting to look for grandpa and people are loading up that truck, that truck sinks down on that mm-hmm. fender on the rear axle till it's like an inch above the tire. Yeah. And they're looking at it going like, is it going to move? Yeah. And Casey's response is, it'd take a miracle. That'd be a miracle <laughs> from scripture. Um, By the way, a very uh, loose limbed uh, Carradine. Oh, yeah. Right? It looked like he like invented he gets, yoga. I mean, he's so limber. He totally, For totally a guy is. his size and his age at the time of making the movie. I was um, shocked how limber he was. Um, and finally, they find Grandpa, and he's not leaving. Right. He's like, I'm going to stay. Yeah. I'm not going. And they go, well, what about Grandma? She's like, ah, take her with me. <laughs> um, and, and they go, what are we going to do? And he has kind of clutched some dirt. Again, this idea of grabbing the dirt. Yeah. And he's clutched some dirt. He's like, this is my home. I'm going to stay here. If Muley can live here, I can live here. And they're like, Who, who's going to cook for you? Who's going to take care of you? He's like, no, no, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to stay here. And Tom's like, what are we going to do? Are we going to tie him up? And they go, well, if we tie him up, we'll either have to hurt him to do it or he's going to hurt himself trying to get free. And finally, they come up with getting him drunk. Yeah. Ma has some soothing syrup. <laughs> <laughs> I love the, this time when alcohol was just the medicine for all things. Yes. And they get him drunk and they, you know, finally get him passed out and pull him onto the truck and they all climb on and they're saying goodbye. And Casey's standing there and they finally go, Ain't you going with us? I'd like to. There's something going on out there in the West and I'd like to try and learn what it is. If you feel you got the room. Find the room. Get on. Now, this is the truck that literally sunk down right yeah. on the tire. And they say, of course we have room. Mm-hmm. And he jumps on. And I was thinking about the idea of charity and compassion. And, and there's, there's a lot of studies trying to figure out who's more charitable, rich people or poor people. Mm. And it's actually hard to figure out because there's a lot of different ways to how you would do the math. But poor people are pretty charitable yeah. in a way that rich people aren't, you know. 
I mean, rich people, you know, like Bill Gates has given away billions and billions sure, sure, and sure. billions of dollars. But that billions and billions of dollars does not hurt him financially. Right. In terms of the things he wants to do. Right. If Bill Gates wants to buy, you know, a jet or a mansion tomorrow, he can do it in cash. Absolutely. Whereas when they let Casey get on the back of that truck and they have $125 and a thousand miles plus to go. Yeah. They're making a sacrifice, mm-hmm. a real sacrifice. Yeah. Um, and they're risking that tire, too. And they're risking that tire. <laughs> and they pull away. And again, this is something we're going to see throughout. As soon as they pull away, the wind blows through. We see the wind a lot. And Ma won't look back. Ain't you going to look back, Ma? Give the old place a last look? We're going to California, ain't we? All right, then, let's go to California. That don't sound like you, Ma. You never was like that before. I never had my house pushed over before. Never had my family stuck out in the road. Never had to lose everything I had in life. This scene connects perfectly with the last scene of her in the truck as well. Mm. I think these two are, uh, mm-hmm. this, is the, mm-hmm. this is the connection. Totally agree. Yeah. Um, we drive out on Route 66 uh, and we go. Route to, 66. Yep. And we go to set up camp and grandpa stills kind of claiming he's not leaving and they lay him down yeah. real gently on the ground and they put a cover over him and he reaches over and he grabs some earth and he holds it to his chest and he dies yeah. and this is what this story is about is this is a story to a large degree about a family falling apart yeah under the pressure of trying to save itself mm-hmm. and grandpa is the first casualty it's the, yeah, it's the first. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And as it goes forward, and you see mom have that conversation later on in the yeah. film with Tom Joad, where she talks about what happened to the family in the pursuit of trying to stay together and trying to stay alive. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Like, there's a reason that Joad rhymes with Job. Yeah. You know, this is a biblical story yeah. in a lot of ways. And they will endure the, the travails of Job mm-hmm. in their way. Mm-hmm. They bury grandpa. They pull a piece of a uh, page out of the Bible to write on, which is explained more in the book. And in the book, they even talk about, well, we should go to the, the, the government, to a town and talk to them and like, well, you know, they're going to charge us to bury him. They're going to charge us $40 right? and we can't do that. And so they bury him. And the best thing they can do is to write this note that says, this here is William James Jode died of a stroke, old, old man. His folks buried him because they got no money for to pay for funeral. Nobody killed him, just a stroke and he died. Because that's a fear. If they find the body, well, they're going to think that they killed yeah, him, you yeah. know? And they say, well, it'll it'll be good to him to be buried with his name, mm-hmm. you know? And then they want Casey to say a few words. But Casey's not a preacher anymore. And they say, look, ain't none of our folks ever been buried without a few words. And so Casey says, it's a weird speech. Mm-hmm. He says... This here old man just lived a life and just died out of it. I don't know whether he was good or bad. It don't matter much. Heard a fellow say a poem once, and he says, all that lives is holy. But I wouldn't pray just for an old man that's dead, because he's all right. If I was to pray, I'd pray for folks that's alive and don't know which way to turn. Grandpa here, he ain't got no more trouble like that. He's got his job all cut out for him, so cover him up and 
let him get to it. I pray for the folks that are alive and don't know where to turn. Those are the ones that need it more. Yeah. Right. That's what I think too. Oh yeah. I mean, I think, you know, having been through a a bunch of funerals now, Mm -hmm. funerals are for the people that are alive. Oh yeah. To celebrate Uh, or or to remember or to mourn or 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 just to be together Mm -hmm. and be sharing this moment of grief. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, you know, cause I'm an atheist. I personally think that's just a body over there at that point. Um, I know you, that's fine. <laughs> but even if, even if I didn't like even you if, heathen, yes, true, right. very true. <laughs> but even if I didn't think that, I don't think any word someone says over a body is going to affect that spirit going to heaven or reincarnation or anything else. Okay. That'd be my opinion. Okay. My atheist opinion. Yes. It maybe doesn't count for that much. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that you've got every right, um, but there is the power of prayer. That's been shown in scientific studies, but anyway, another digression. We're not going to go on. Um, uh, and of course, also what's important here too, Steve, is he says what uh, Tom Jode says, he says, government care more about a dead body than a living one. Just going to say that. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, no, don't be sorry. I'm glad you said it. I think that's a really interesting point. Very powerful point. And I think there are probably people today who might feel the same way. Hell yes. Yeah. Um, and, of course, they're beautiful reaction shots of grandma and the kids and them crying. And this is the thing about the movie is this family doesn't have time to mourn much. Yeah. This is all the time they have to mourn grandpa. I mean, when my family members have died, it has been weeks and, you know, months of, of dealing with that. And they're just like, they put them in the ground and they got to get in the car and yeah. drive on. Um, they pull into this camp. They set up camp. A lot of other people just like them. And... Uh, Connie, who is, I sh- should have mentioned, Connie is uh, Rosa Sharon, the pregnant sister's mm-hmm. husband. He's yeah. doing some singing. Um, and again, there's a, just beautiful shots. I mean, it looks like Renaissance paintings, some yeah. of the way these shots are framed. And they and they start talking to another guy. And they say, oh, I'm an Oklahoma sharecropper. And he's from Arkansas and ran a store. But the same thing happened to him. Because as soon as the farmers got kicked off the land, his store had to close. And this is something we see happening all over the country now as an industry shuts down. Like you think of Flint, Michigan, and all the things that are happening there. Yeah. Is that as a factory town, all built around General Motors. And when the factory started to close down, then all the other started happening stuff happened to Flint, Michigan. Right. And then and then the Jode family's talking about, well, when we get out to California and we get work, get us a piece of good growing land, we might be it might not be too bad. And all the other folks there are green and this one guy says, "Well, you must have a lot of money." No, we ain't got no money, but there's plenty of us to work and we're all good men. Get good wages out there and put it all together and we'll be all right. And now this guy starts laughing. <laughs> good wages, eh? Picking oranges and peaches? We aim to take whatever they got. What's so funny about that? (laughs) What's so funny about it? I've just been out there. I've been and seen it. I'm going back and starve because I'd rather starve all over at once. That's a dark, dark thing to hear. And then we hear, and they pull out their handbills and say, look, we got this thing. It says they need 800 workers. And this is where you hear one of the keys because he laughs some more. And he says, how many of you got those handbills? And it looks like, Everyone there did. And then he says, so let's say a man wants 800 people. So he prints 5,000 handbills and maybe 20,000 people see them and two or 3,000 people head out West and they're all desperate for work. And now the other folks are kind of not liking this guy. And they go, are you a troublemaker labor guy? (laughs) And this is this thing. This is the frosting is this idea of like, oh, well, if he's talking, maybe he's one of these, well, we'll hear this word later. Yeah. Reds. Don't you go around here trying to stir up any trouble. 
I tried to tell you folks what it took me a year to find out. Took two kids dead. Took my wife dead to show me. But nobody could tell me neither. I can't tell you about them little fellas laying in the tent with their bellies swelled out and just skin over their bones, a shivering and a whining like pups, and me a running around looking for work. Not for money, not for wages, just for a cup of flour and a spoon of lard. Then the coroner come. Them children died of heart failure, he said. He put it down in his paper. Heart failure? And that little belly stuck out like a pig bladder? Breaks down and he cries. Yeah. Again, this is like Muley. Like, this is so profound. And, and I love this moment after where Pa asks Casey, you suppose he's telling the truth? And Casey's response is, he's telling the truth. The truth for him. Right. And Tom asks the key question. Was it the truth for us? I don't know. Mm-hmm. And they look at that handbill. And this is, the, this is the first sense of what's to come. Yeah. And, and here's the thing. I, I was looking up some of the statistics. Um, from 1935 to 1939, which is when this was happening, a million poor farmers came to California. The population, the entire population of California in 1935 was about 6 million. Huh. So 6 million people in California and a million poor farmers show up. Yeah. And this is the... This is a refugee crisis. You know, this is a whole population of mm-hmm. people moving, desperate, starving on the very edge of survival, yeah. coming to a, a, a state, in this case, that isn't ready for them. Yeah. And also, they're open for abuse, yeah. which is what we're going to see. Uh, we're still driving. We make it off to a gas station. Grandma needs to get out. She needs to stretch her legs. And the first thing, the gas station guy comes up and says, are you going to buy anything? Got any money? Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and this is the, you know, how does it feel to be treated like a thing based on the way you look yeah. before anyone knows who you are? Right. Based on the look of you. Yeah. They're being treated like criminals yep. and they're not. Yeah. Or deadbeats or bums. Or deadbeats or, or bums. Yeah. Um, and now we're at the diner. Oh yeah. This scene. I, this is the, this is the scene of the movie for me in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. And in the book, and it's interesting by the way. Almost all the dialogue in the film is basically right out of the book. Uh-huh. This is not like structurally some things changed. A lot of things got cut. Some things get moved around. But in terms of what these people say, yeah. it's right out of the book. And, and, and the way the book works is it tends to have a story about the Jodes and then sort of a general story about people selling cars to migrant people right. or how the camps work or how and they're sort of or how the the bankers worked or how the you know various things worked yeah uh and so this diner story actually isn't with the jodes it's a story about truck drivers and a story about all the diners across route 66 that you know and how they worked yeah um but the scene is still beautiful we got some truck drivers in a diner they're asking about the pie they're flirting with the waitress and then in walks pa jode and the first response of the waitress is Jesus. Mm-hmm. And Paul just wants a loaf of bread. Could you see your way clear to sell us a loaf of bread, ma'am? This ain't a grocery store. We got bread to make sandwiches with. I know, ma'am. Only it's for an old lady. No teeth. Got to soften the water so she can chew it. She's hungry. 
Yeah, and she's like, we'll buy a sandwich. And he's got no money for sandwiches. Yeah. He's got 10 cents to buy a loaf of bread. That's all they got. And she says, well, our loaves are 15 cent loaves. And She's so antagonistic at the beginning of this scene. Well, how many guys looking like Pa Joe yeah. have walked in yeah. and maybe ripped her off? Well, and that's the thing. That's that's why this is not a black and white issue. That's, no. That's why it's an interesting film and also why... There's some bad people we're going to meet. In sure, movie. sure. But these these moments are black and white. I mean, these moments are not black and white, rather. Right. And this is what we get in our world now, this idea of, like, yes, we want to help, but to what extent do we help? And then what about the people that take advantage of it when we do yep. help them the first few times? Do we let that warp us helping someone else who might be deserving who comes through the door? Like this whole interaction that occurs with the and then the cook, who I imagine is the owner of the place. It's like sell them the loaf. Give them the bread. We'll run out before the bread truck comes. All right, then we run out. And eventually her defenses do come down. This is a 15 cent loaf. Well, would you could you see your way to cutting off 10 cents worth? Give them the loaf. No, sir. We want to buy 10 cents worth, that's all. And I think that cut off 10 cents is is what one of the things that softens the waitress. Yeah. Go ahead. Bert says to take it. Go on, it's yesterday's bread. I don't think it is. You don't think it is? No. Oh, wow. I think it's I nice. think that's I think that's a lie too. Well, it may sound funny being so tight, but we got a thousand miles to go and we don't know if we'll make it. And she's ringing them up and the two kids have come in. And I think that's part of why the waitress softens so much is you see these two kids and the kids are staring at that candy counter and they're not saying anything. They're not asking for anything. They're just staring at it. And finally the paw sees it and he goes, are those penny candy? Which ones? There, them stripy ones. Oh, them. Well, uh, no. Them's two for a penny. Uh, Give us two then, ma'am. This always makes me cry. Mm. Yeah. This moment. And, and he takes them. And they go, and the kids are just, you could see yep. the wonder of being able to have this piece of candy, that this is not a thing that they got to have. Go on, take them, take them. Thank you, ma'am. And they go out, and the truck drivers exchange a look, and they say, Them ain't two for a cent candy. What's it to you? Them's a nickel apiece candy. So the waitress, who at the beginning said Jesus, and said, get out, buy a sandwich, and just... Suddenly, by the end of this scene, has given him a 15-cent loaf of bread for 10 cents right. and then given him 10 cents worth of candy for a penny. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, the truck drivers, they go, it's, you know, it's, we got to get moving. And they go to pay their bill and they put down some money. And she looks at these big coins, which I don't know, maybe they're 50-cent pieces mm-hmm. or dollars. And she goes, you got change coming. And they just walk out. Yeah. And her last response is, truck drivers. Gets what? me. Every what, time. What does that mean? What do you think? What do you read into that? Well, in the book, it goes much more into detail about okay. truck drivers, and and it's really about that. You know, they they make connections with all these people on the right. road. That they make build friendships with everyone who's there, and that they are. It's it's really compassionate about the truck drivers, right? Because they pick them up and take yeah. them from place to place. Yes, and of that. course, it goes into how the truck drivers are having to drive longer hours for less money for bosses. Right. That, you know that they used to own their rigs, and then they don't own their rigs anymore, and it's all the same story is happening to the truck drivers. Mm-hmm. It's just that, you know, this is a moment of human compassion, yeah. you know, and it's human compassion in very small form, but a small form that means a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It really gets me. We're heading out of New Mexico and into Arizona. And the first thing the guy says is, how long you plan on staying in Arizona? Right. And he goes, well, we're just passing through. And he goes, yeah, see that you don't stop. Mm-hmm. 
They're not wanted. Nope. Yep. Um, we get to the Colorado River, and we're now really close to California. Mm-hmm. And this part of California doesn't look that good to them. And like, wait, what is this what we're driving for? Uh, and we're now playing in the river. And this scene is much bigger in the book. There's this character, Noah, who barely speaks in the, in the movie. He's playing with a boat in the river. In the book, he goes, I'm just going to walk down the river. And he leaves them. Oh. And he sort of seems to have some mental issues. Okay. And he walks down the river and they can't really stop him. And they can't wait. Right. And so they leave. So it's one more person that gets lost. Makes sense for Noah to get lost in the water. And to be playing with a boat. Yep. Yep. Um, <laughs> a little uh, on the nose, Steinbeck. Yep. Because if there's one criticism about your book, there's Steinbeck. <laughs> it's, a, it's a little on the nose. They get to a gas station. It's the middle of the night. And the gas station attendant, you know, they're filling up the tank. And he says, you people got a lot of nerve. What do you mean? Crossing the desert in a jalopy like this. And Tom's response, I think, is really interesting, which is that. You take no nerve, do something, ain't nothing else you can do. That's the thing that the people that encounter them don't understand. Yeah. They don't have choices. Because they encounter them from a place of privilege. Exactly right. Yeah. They have their, ch- they can choose to go across the desert in this jalopy. These people don't have a choice to live, to survive. They have to take these kinds of chances. And as they're filling up with gas, we see grandma laying in, in Ma's lap with Casey stand beneath her in a can of water. And they're yeah. just trying to get her to drink a little bit and putting one. And it is, again, I'm going to use the word painterly. This looks like a Renaissance. This looks like the Pieta. This looks like Jesus, you know, held in Mary's lap. Right. You know, it is such a beautifully framed shot. And again, the religious, you know, echoes of this story, the grapes of wrath. And then they they just kind of hope that grandma's going to make it. And they get in the car and they drive off into the Mojave desert. And, and in their drive, they, you know, it's the thing of, you know, it's like Lawrence of Arabia. They must make it through the desert before the next day. Right. Because the heat's going to, literally, it's going to kill them. And as they drive away, we're left with these two guys in white. So you see that. And the, the name of the uh, thing is the Last Chance Saloon. Oh, I didn't notice Yeah, that. Last Chance Gas Station. And the way, and they're like opening their gum and just casually uh, chewing it or whatever. You know, yeah. it, they're so judgmental. Well, and, he, and here's what they say. Holy Moses, what a hard-looking outfit. All them Moses is hard-looking. Oh, but I'd hate to hit that desert in a jalopy like that. You and me got sense. Them Moses got no sense and no feeling. They ain't human. No human being wouldn't live the way they do. Human being couldn't stand to be so miserable. Just don't know any better, I guess. It's the same argument. No matter what decade you're in, yep. that speaking down about people because of how they look or their their financial condition or what have you, without knowing what brought them to that state, without knowing why they're in that condition that they're in. And that if they're in their condition, it must be because they're not human. It's, uh, right. And it's their fault. It's their fault. Instead of like, no, if you had no food, if you had lost your land and you had no money and you were desperate, you'd look just like those people. Exactly. And you'd be making the same kind of choices that they're making. Mm-hmm. You know, but we can't, it's very hard. And this is why this is one of the books that changed the world is that people who read this book and then saw this movie couldn't see the otherness anymore. Mm-hmm. They saw people, they, they saw Tom Joad and Ma. Yeah. They saw people that they understood and felt human. And then they couldn't treat this. It's not that instantly all the problems in America got solved right. because these are really hard problems. But the first step in solving them is to see people with empathy as human beings yeah. and not as animals, not as not human. 
this correlation with refugees is really interesting, Steve. I hadn't thought about that watching the film. But yeah, they're in essence refugees. They are refugees. Yeah, they're they're they're, they're within used, the same country, right? Within the same country, which is really interesting. And so all of the and refugee from the system of that country, they're yeah. a refugee of that as well to try to find someplace else to you know to work and to live. Yeah. Um, we drive through the desert, and this is of course the Mojave, and we see these beautiful reflections in the windshield as yeah. we drive and the kids are looking out in the desert and talking about, you know, lots of dead bones out there, which of course there are human bones. And then we're, we're back with uh, ma and grandma and grandma calls out for grandpa. And ma just says, we got to get across the family's got to get across and they do get across yeah. and they get to like the state stop inspection, which still exists today, of course. Yep. And they say, you got to unload all your stuff because we got to search through your car. Mm. And they come around to Ma. Sorry, folks, but you'll have to get out while we unload for inspection. Oh, look, mister, we've got a sick old lady. We've got to get her to a doctor. We can't wait. You can't make us wait. And they say, is she really sick? Because I think they'd probably been scammed before. Sure. Well, I swear we ain't got anything. I swear it. Grandma's awful sick. Look. And they shine a flashlight at Grandma, and boy, she does look real sick. And they yeah. go, okay. Go straight to the to Barstow. Eight miles away, there's a there's a, a doctor there. Don't stop till you get there. Right. Of course, they don't stop in Barstow. They keep going, and we get to that hill overlooking the beautiful farmland. I'm mm -hmm. guessing it's like the San, San Bernardino or something like that. And they look out and they see, I think, what looks like the land of milk and honey. Yeah. They see the beautiful country. They see the farmland. And Pa gets out. He calls, and everyone comes out and looks out over this view and goes. There she is. There she is. I never knew there was anything like her. Well, you look at her. One of them's orange trees, John. Look like orange trees to me. Well, they sure are pretty, whatever they are. And then Ma gets out of the car. She walks around, and she sits down on the fender. Where's Ma? I want Ma to see this. Look, Ma. Come here, Ma. Yeah. yeah. Part of it's because I've read the book, and I know, understand, there's more in this that's in the mm. book. You sick, Ma? You say we got a cross? Look. Oh, thank God. And we're still together, most of us. Most of us, yeah. yeah. Didn't you sleep none? Was Grandma bad? And that's when she tells him. Grandma's dead. When? Since before they stopped us last night. That's why you didn't want him to look, huh? She was afraid they'd stop us. She was dead when they, they were at the stop, mm -hmm. and she sat with a dead body, praying they wouldn't get stopped for probably hours and hours as they drove through the night, not being able to tell anyone. Right. Because if she told the kids or told anybody else or shared it, they might give it away. Yeah. And so she, I just, the image of Ma holding the death of, I'm assuming it's her mother, yeah. to herself and taking on all the pain of the family to make sure they get there. Yeah. Because the family's got to get across. There's no time for histrionics and weeping nope. and gnashing of teeth and ripping of clothes. There is a bigger goal here. And again, again the correlation of Exodus. I'm sure how many people yep. lost their grandparents or, or older parents as they crossed the desert, as they tried to reach the land of milk and honey. It's part of the process. Well, how hard did your family work to try to get to this country? Yeah. You know, both. How, how hard? How hard did my family, all my ancestors, yeah. come into this country? I don't know what they lost along the way. Yeah, they probably yeah. lost a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, like and this is what's happened to humans over and over again. Yeah, is the struggle to go make a different, a better life to save the family mm -hmm. costs you yeah. in all sorts of ways. Yeah, and they buried 
Ma in California, in the yeah. green ground, in the fertile earth. And again, Exodus is that Moses didn't get to step onto the promised land. Right. But they, but he was buried there. Yeah. You know? I mean, Steinbeck, if you read him, he's always fascinated by the Bible. And if you read like East of Eden, which is actually, East of Eden is my favorite Steinbeck book. Oh. And it is, the title alone is that it is a long analysis, mostly of the story of Cain and Abel. Right. And what does it mean, you know, mm -hmm. in this whole history, many, many generations of this family. And that's my, I love that stuff. Do you? Okay. Oh, yeah. And they, they come into town and immediately get stopped by a cop, which is Ward Bond. Ward Bond. Who's now, I think this is our third movie. Mm -hmm. We've talked about him in because he's in It's a Wonderful Life. And The Searchers. And The Searchers. Worked with John Ford over and over again. Yep. He's totally different in this role. Bert the Cop. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he's great. Yeah. And it ends up that he's from Oklahoma, too, from Cherokee County. Right. But what does he have to tell them? You can't stay in town. you got to get out of town. Just uh, like a refugee that has come before. Yep. The refugee has settled in. And then new refugees come from that country. And there's a... Com a connection there. Right. Right. Immediately. Oh, my God. One of our own. But he can't really help him. Nope. And he says, if you stay here, I'm going to have to put you in jail. Yeah. Uh, I and, think that's his way of helping them. Yeah. And they're, they ask, what are we going to do? And, and he doesn't say, he's like, it's not up to me. Yeah. But if you ask me, the guy that got a luck up is the guy that sent you that handbill. Yeah. So we, I think at this point, we know this isn't going to go well. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. And they pull into this camp two miles out of town. This is not a happy place. No. Uh, there's this long POV shot of they pull in, and the faces of the people are, these aren't Hollywood extras. No. These look like the people. These look like real people. Well, you bring up something uh, a lot throughout this uh, podcast, Steve, about the shots and the looks. And uh, like um, uh, reading one of the pieces that I read before we did the, this uh, episode, uh, they said that the way he shot it forward and the way Toland uh, from this was very similar to the photographs that were taken for the for, by a famous photographer. Uh, Capturing what was happening yep. in the Dust Bowl and all this kind of stuff. So there is some foundation for these shots right. to bring them to life, you know. But the biblical aspects of them all, the looks and stuff you're talking about, I'm sure that a lot was influenced by Ford. Well, one of the interesting things is, so Zanuck, when he buys the rights to the book, yeah. he's still nervous. And he's like going, wait a minute, is it really this bad? So what he does is he hires a bunch of detectives and has them go undercover to what we would call Hoovervilles, or that's what they would call them at right, the time, these right. camps and to the government camps and, and have them report back. And they come back to him and says, the book makes it look better than it is. It's actually much worse. Yeah. And so he goes, okay. You know, and at the same time, I think it's these photographs. There's a huge Life magazine yeah. showing all this stuff. And um, by the way, one of the women is uh, May Marsh, who was the star of Birth of a Nation. Oh, who's wow. one of the women who's in at this camp? Oh, wow! And Ford apparently used her quite a bit. Okay. Um, and the re it's like first of all, our reaction to seeing this camp, and then you see Pa and Ma and all of our Jode family see the camp they're going into. It's rough. Yeah. Um, Depressing. Yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, a, a quote that I thought related to this is there was a French critic who asked John Ford, do you like to make films about things that make you angry? <laughs> and John Ford's response, which I love, is what the hell else does a man live for? <laughs> I totally relate to that. Absolutely. I think that's great. Yep. They set up camp and Ma starts cooking and a girl walks up and says, hey, can I help? Mm -hmm. And then more kids start showing up and Ma realizes she wants food yeah. and that these other kids must be starving. And, you know, it's kind of, none of you had any breakfast. And then I love that one of the boys says, oh, no, we had breakfast. We had, and he, of course, he's lying. Yeah. Because he's too proud to say that he wants to beg for food. Right. And this is where, this is where you get into this thing of, 
at what point do you have to stop being charitable? Because they're looking at, we don't have enough food to feed our own family. And there are all these hungry kids. And you could see Ma's just torn up inside. Well, I don't know what to do. I've got to feed the family. And what am I going to do about all these here? And she goes, okay, well, I'm going to serve the family first. She gives food to John, and John tries to give it to Tom. Yeah. And goes, no, I'm, I'm sick to my stomach. I don't want to eat it. And Tom's like, you're going to eat it. Yeah. And he goes, you it, go inside that tent and you eat it. It's he, that struggle between the older generation wanting the younger generation to survive because the older generation already yep. had their time, but the younger generation respecting the older generation so much saying, I can survive without food. Yep. You can't. Right. You need it more than I do because... You, your body is breaking down, so you need more supplements and more nutrition. Well, and when Tom says, go eat it inside the tent, yeah. John's response is, I'll still see him inside yeah, the tent. Yeah, I'll still see him inside the tent. Because they're in his can't. How can you, once you see it, how do you unsee it? Uh, and fa- finally, Moss says, realize she can't turn him away. Mm-hmm. And she tells them all that when we're done, you, they can basically split the rest. And you see these kids scramble over a garbage heap to get a yeah. tin can, a plate, anything they can use to get some food. And they rush back and... They just scrape together whatever one mouthful they can of what, you know, fried lard or whatever it is that she made. And Ma's response is, I don't know whether I'm doing right or not. Well, you're watching that. It's very similar to pouring the feed in a, for the farm animals. They come running mm-hmm. and they all, uh, you know, battle for whatever they can eat out of the trough. And that's sad. You know, I can't imagine watching a kid grow hungry. Oh, yeah. You know, I can't, you know, watching my own kid go hungry. Mm. I can't imagine. A recruiter comes. Now, these are the guys hired by the big farms to come bring in some people to work. And he says, hey, you guys want to work? And they're like, everyone says, yeah, we want to work. He's done any fruit picking? And they go, we could could pick anything. And then one guy says, what's it paying? Mm -hmm. And he says he can't tell. Why can't you tell? You took the contract, didn't you? That's true, but it's key to the price. Might be a little more, might be a little less. And the guy, the guy who's kind of asking questions says, well, I'll go. You just show me your license, show me where you're going to go, how much you're going to pay, and we'll all go. Now, listen, smart guy. I'll run my business my own way. I got work. If you want to take it, okay. If not, just sit here, that's all. Twice now I fell for that line. Maybe he needs a 1,000 men. So he gets 5,000 there, and he'll pay 15 cents an hour. And you guys will have to take it because you'll be hungry. And this is the trap. Mm-hmm. So one, so here's another interesting fact. Uh, wages in California dropped from 25 cents an hour to 15 cents an hour in the 30s. Wow. That's a huge drop. Yep. And it's because, you know, the laws of economy, yes, supply and demand. demand. Yeah. You got a million workers coming in. You don't have to pay them very much because when their kids are starving, they're going to work for whatever you pay them. Mm-hmm. Um, Still going on now. Yep. And the response of the contractor, because now for the first time we kind of notice there's a cop in the car yep. with him. He leans over to the cop and says, hey, Joe, it's an agitator. And the sh- and this guy looks up and they ask him if he's seen him before. And he goes, seems like I have. Seems like I've seen him hanging around a used car lot that was busted in there. So they're going to frame him. Yep. Yep. And this is still happening as oh, yeah. well. Oh, yeah. Police framing innocent people for whatever reason. Not all police i want to clarify that but people in power abusing their power in a a show of force or a show of feeling like they're big shit in this in this moment this scene is a really is a very hard scene for me to watch because once again the guy is so indifferent and he's so like he's, he's so willing to exploit these workers so willing to look down on them so willing to treat them as less than human and then using the law buying the law in essence to enforce 
those people and then frame a guy for this. And then what happens after? Because so obvious. It's not it's, nobody. Nobody here believes that this guy. Oh no! You know, was going to a used car lot. Right. Was robbing a used car. Not lot. at all. There's obviously a huge. There's a huge tension between labor and and owners throughout American history, yep. the world history, I guess we could say. Yep. And obviously this is a huge thing going on in the 30s. And there's one point in which Steinbeck's researching the book and he's talking to a big farmer. And he and the big farmer keeps talking about communists. Yeah. And Steinbeck goes, what exactly do you mean when you say communist? And his response is, I mean any son of a bitch who wants 30 cents an hour when I want to pay two bits. It's ridiculous. Because it goes up the chain. Because that person who wants that doesn't want to pay what the government is asking him to pay in taxes for the business right. that he has. It's like, well, wait, no, no. The government is telling you what to pay. Just like you're telling those four workers what you're going to pay them. So you better eat it up and pay those taxes and shut the fuck up. Because if you're going to bitch about a worker wanting to have a, a decent living wage and then you're going to cry that the government's taxing you too much, you can kiss my ass. Well, like, it, I'm so tired of those arguments I well, hear the all thing the time. Is, I firmly believe that someone who runs a business has... Does, has the right to make money. Yes. A, a profit. Otherwise, they Absolutely. can't run a business. Absolutely. But I also believe that if you employ employees and they have to work for slave starvation wages, yeah. that that is immoral. And you don't have to pay them slave starvation wages, but you want to make as much money as possible because you want to, in essence, you want to rape their work for your benefit. That's ridiculous. Particularly, like like you think of today, Jeff Bezos, currently the richest yeah. man in the world. Yeah. And I think if he and I were going to have a political conversation, Jeff Bezos and I are probably f- closer mm-hmm. than I am to a lot of other people. Right. Jeff Bezos's, uh, those guys working in those warehouses are mostly paid so low that they have to be on uh, food stamps and other government subsidies. Right. And it's like, if you're the richest fucking man in the yeah. world. Yeah. You can afford to, and you ha- you shouldn't be the richest man in the world and have employees that don't have benefits, exactly. that don't get, you know, that is that is not right. People want to game the system for their own money, but get mad when the workers want to try to game the system themselves. Like, it's the hypocrisy of that that, that infuriates me. It's the willful ignorance of it that infuriates me all the time, you know, it's, it's just mind-blowing to me. So they're gonna they're suddenly accusing this guy of robbing a car and this is where Tom yeah. starts to stand up. Got nothing on him. Open your trap again and you'll go too. And you see that again, we're at this place with Tom Jode where he's close to doing something. Yeah. And they go to take this guy in. This guy takes a swing at the cop yeah. and runs. The cop pulls his gun and shoots an innocent woman right in the chest. <laughs> and then Tom punches him. Knocks the cop out. And then Casey stomps on his head. Yep. Mm-hmm. And Casey tells Tom, you go run. I'll, basically, I'll take the heat. Yep. You know? Um, and it's a really interesting moment for Casey. And John Carradine's performance. Mm-hmm. He's smiling. Yep. He feels like he has accepted some sort of, I'm going to go through some pain, and that is what is right for me now. Mm-hmm. The religious uh, punishment for a sin. And there maybe there's A sin some, he didn't commit. A sin he didn't commit, but... Yeah. Other sins he's committed. Well, and I also think that he wants to know. That's the thing about Casey is he goes, I need to know what this jail thing is. I need to go through all the things that people have to go through so I can understand. Um, I mean, he's a Jesus figure. There's no question that Casey mm-hmm. is a, a a man on a spiritual journey, yeah. you know, and, and treated to some degree as a savior. Yeah. And Tom resists, but in the end, you know, it's like, look, you're on parole. If they catch you, you go back to jail. Right. I'm, I'm a nobody. Yeah. Uh, so 
Tom runs. The whole whole bunch more police comes in. Casey's just sitting there squatting <laughs> by the unconscious sheriff, and he says, "I hit him, and I hit him again." And he, the 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 cops ask the guy who'd been knocked out, "Is this the guy who hit you?" And he's like, "Doesn't look like the guy." <laughs> and Casey just smiles and holds up his hands to get handcuffed. Yeah, it's a weird scene. It's even weirder when they walk by the woman and she dies. In essence, she's, she's mortally wounded right in front of them. Yep. And the only thing the cop says is, "Boy, those forty fives really make a mess." Yep. That's it. The indifference. Yeah. Go get the doctor or whatever. But by this point, this no guy rush. doesn't go to jail for shooting an innocent woman nope. who was just standing there haphazardly with his weapon instead of being careful. Why? Because they see these people as less than human. Yep. Therefore, their deaths mean nothing. Yep. Again, good thing we're not seeing anything like this today. Right. Tom comes back to camp. It's quiet. And he says, we got to get out of here because yeah. they're going to burn out the camp. And so everyone packs up and they start leaving. And of course, in the book, this is exactly what happens. They burned out the camp. Wow. There were private sort of militia organizations set up along the California border called bum blockades to keep these, these migrants out. Hmm. Walls? Walls, guys with guns. Yeah. Yeah. Guys with pickaxes. And it, I'll tell you what hurts me, it, which is something that might sound strange to you. I'm a fifth generation Californian. Uh huh. You know, I had fan. Now my family wasn't farmers because they're all Jews, so they were all merchants. <laughs> but but, um, you said that I did. You said that. it's true. It's true. Um, but but I I I have real pride about my Californian heritage. Yeah, respect. This makes me ashamed. Oh, to see that. Yeah, yeah. That's fear. Yeah. Right. That's what always instigates sure. any of that behavior. It's fear. Fear of loss. Fear of what could happen. Fear of being, you know, and also lack of intelligence. Yeah. Because that's what you default to. Yeah. And the other thing that's happened is we've won lost one more person. Yeah. Which is something we really haven't talked about, which is Connie. Yeah. And Connie was getting iffy. He was squirrely this whole trip, which we mm-hmm. haven't talked about very much. I think Connie, and you, you know a lot more about him in the book, but he had these big dreams. I'm going to be an electrical engineer and mm-hmm. get a house and all this stuff. But Connie doesn't really want to work. Nope. And when things get hard... Connie hightails it out and leaves his pregnant wife, Rosa Sharon, and she is now all alone. Now she's a, a single, going to be a mother. Yeah. Yeah. How many men did that during, during these times? Yeah. Well, this is the thing is that you, you, put, now, you put people in the pressure cooker and things are going to break. Mm-hmm. You know, people are going to their, reach their breaking points. Yeah. And honestly, I've never been through, I've never been starving. I've never had to work the, and live the way these people live. I don't know where my breaking point is. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I would hope that I'd be Tom Joe or that I'd be Ma, you yeah. know? I hope I would have that strength. But, you know. You never know. We don't know. No. Um, we didn't have a car for the first two years we lived in this country. Yeah. Yeah. Like, we were poor. My, I, sure. I've been so poor in my life. Like, I've been so poor. Uh, I've lived with multiple families in one place when right. we first were. So, I know what that feels like. And even out here, there there were months or stretches of time where I had to borrow money just to stay alive sure. in the city. So I I know what that's like. You know, it's it's always right around the corner. It's terrible. And some people react to it differently. Do you know what I'm saying? And I would get depressed about it, but still try to hustle you, for work. You, you fought your way yeah, through. Yeah. And you're here. That's you life. Know, you're, yeah. you're right now. You fight through it, man. Yeah. You have to find a way. And you and luck sometimes finds you, you know, and right. I've been very fortunate in that way. But there are other people who don't have that yep. uh, situation or and don't, don't have get that lucky. Luck, and, and they who don't. Knows what, I mean, it's like yeah. if, you, if you had, I'm sure you've had times in life where you had five terrible things happen in a row. Oh, yeah. And you were right on the edge. Oh, yeah. And there's some people that had the sixth and the seventh. Mm-hmm. And that was it. Yep. You know? 
and then they're homeless. Yeah. You know, um, and I bet, and I, I'm going to say this, and this might be a horrible thing to say, but I bet when you were living with multiple families, that there was some asshole out there who said, "How can they live like that?" Yeah. That of you know course. why? Because they don't feel things the way we feel things. Right. right. That's what's horrible. Yeah. You know. That's true. And and Ma's talking to Tom. And Tom says, Ma, there comes a time when a man gets mad. You told me. You promised me. I know, Ma. I'm a trying to. There was a law they was working with. Maybe we could take it. But it ain't the law. They're working away in our spirits. Trying to make us cringe and crawl. Working on our decency. You promised, Tom. I'm interested in that phrase, work on our decency. Because that's what's happening. Is that in the last scene, Ma gave food away to those kids. Yeah. And I bet in the next one, she won't. Mm-hmm. They're trying to work on our decency. Mm-hmm. And Ma says, you promised the family is breaking up. You got to keep clear. And as this is happening, they're pulling up to a bunch of men mm-hmm. who are crowded. And they go, what's this, a detour? And of course, it's like this thing I talked about, yeah. the bum blockade. And Tob grabs what's probably a tire iron or something. And Ma stops him. Yeah. And I think this is, he was right on the edge of getting mad, of getting mean mad. Right. And you know what? He has every right to be mean mad. Mm-hmm. It's the wrong choice. Right. But he has every right to be mad. Mm-hmm. And they ask him where they're going. And he says, oh, we're heading somewhere. We heard there was work. And he's yeah, like, they're not coming through here. Yeah. Turn around. You're going the wrong direction. Yeah. Yeah. In the book, the Jodes have never heard of the term Okies mm. until right about now. Huh. Um, and it's funny thinking about this term because one gets used throughout the book. And at the time, it was used for anyone from Arkansas, from Texas. Right. Anyone who's coming west was called an Okie. And it felt to them, I think, the way we would talk about the N-word. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's what that word felt like. Yeah. And they didn't even know what this, like when someone started, people started calling them that, they're like, well, I don't even know what that word is. And then they they did know what it yeah. is. They got another flight t- flat tire. They're pulling over to the side of the road to fix it. And up comes a guy in a really nice car <laughs> and says, you guys looking to work? And they say, hell yeah. And they say, well, tell them, go this way, go to the Keen Ranch, tell them Spencer sent you. Spencer. They think everything's solved. I don't think we feel good about anything at this point. This is a, what's funny in a weird way. This is like a horror movie because good piece point. by piece, yeah. you see like them going like, don't go in that room. Don't go. It's not yeah. going to go well. Yeah. And they start driving to this place and they see a bunch of police and they see people on the side of the road. And they're going, what is this? Is there a wreck? What's happening? Yeah. And they pull up and the, and there's a lot of suspicion and they say, what are you here for? And they're here to work. And that Spencer set us and they go, okay. And they wave them through. And as we drive through, we see that the people on the side of the road, Looks like them. Yeah. People that look like them. And then we drive through some gates and there's more police or deputies. Mm-hmm. They got ax hang- handles. They got guns. Uh, and they're looking around going, what is going on? And Tom definitely doesn't like it. Yeah. And as they go through the gates into this ranch, we see kids looking through the fence mm-hmm. into the ranch. And the ranch is like, it's like an armed camp. Yeah. There's all sorts of people with guns, people with ax handles guiding them through. And they're continually asked, are you here to work? Are you here to work? And they say, yeah, we are. And they get guided to a little cabin, little hut, mm-hmm. you know, just pretty messy. And they get interrogated a bit about how many people there are, number, uh, the, you know, number of men, number of women, number of, ch- of kids. And they say, we're going to give you five cents a box to pick peaches, yeah. no bruised fruit. Which is a big thing, bigger thing in the book than it is in the movie. Now you look here. We don't want no trouble with you. Just do your own work and mind your business, and you'll be all right. We do want to make you feel at home here, all right. It's not a very homey reception they're getting here. Not at all. And they get some buckets, Mm -hmm. and they're going out to pick some peaches. And the silent march that they see of people going to pick peaches Mm -hmm. does not make you feel good. It's very much the shades of Metropolis. 
of them walking into the factory. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Lifeless. Yep. Lifeless. Yep. yep. Um, and come back later that night, we're having some dinner and, and Tom's going, is this all we get to eat? Mm. You know, we, we made a dollar, which was a lot of money back then. And Ma says, well, this is what a dollar buys at the company store. Cause they overcharge. Yep. Right. They're making their money off people. They just turn, yep. they just make you slaves to the situation. And there's, and, and they, t- and it's funny, again, more detail in the book is that the guy in the company store, cause we see Ma like on, well, how much is this? Well, how yeah. much is this? And everything's two to three times what it would normally cost. And he says, well, you can get in your truck and drive 25 miles and spend the gas to go buy the stuff at the store down the hill, but it's not worth it. Yeah. And this is the trap. You know, and if you if you read the book The Jungle, this is a huge part of the jungle. Is yeah. that it looks like you can work to make enough money to get ahead, but in fact you can't. Yeah. Um, there's a quote which I, I I never remember exactly the quote from Lincoln that I love, which is basically like the way the system is supposed to work, that you go and you work for somebody else, and if you work real hard and if you're real smart and take care of your money, you can eventually get enough money to get a place of your own, mm-hmm. whether that's a store or a fo- piece of land or whatever it is. And if you work real hard at that on your own and you take care of your money, you can eventually get enough money that you can hire somebody else. Mm-hmm. And you pay him enough money that if he works real hard and takes care of his money, he can he can move ahead to the next level himself. Right. And he said, that's how the system is supposed to work. And if there isn't enough money to ever get ahead, then the system is broken. Right. Now, I'm not quoting Lincoln very well, but that... Yeah. But like, this is a, uh, is that people have to be able to, if they work real hard, they got to be able to get ahead. Yeah. And if they're not being paid enough, they just can hang on by their fingernails and then suddenly they got a medical cost or they get something else and they get knocked on, on their ass again. Yeah. Well, the system's broken. Right. Again, I don't know that we're facing anything like that today. <laughs> um, so then Tom's getting curious and he goes, I want to find out what that thing was that we drove it through mm-hmm. getting in. And Moss goes, be careful. Tom's like, oh, I'll be careful. <laughs> Tom's not being careful. Tom's always getting into shit, man. Yeah. That's why he's a, he's a, he's a troubling uh, protagonist. Yeah. He's a, he could leave well enough to know, but then we don't have a movie. Well, there is no well enough, though. That's why I disagree, is that the situation okay. they're in is not well enough. There's... But he goes trying to find out stuff that right. he doesn't need to find out. Well, except... except... But his curiosity gets the better. I, I agree... Except no, I'm not that, trying to get you yeah. to agree with me. I'm just that's my point. Except that it's like the system. They're they're in a because actually the thing he he does have to find out because mm-hmm. the reality is that what he's going to find out is that the price is going to go from five cents a box to right. two and a half cents. Right. Is that this actually is information that his family does need mm-hmm. because they don't understand the reality of the situation. Tom sneaks out of camp. He uh, in, after someone threatens him, by the way. Yeah, that and guy. He, and he goes down to this tent and someone asks. Hey, who are you? Do you know anyone here? And he goes, no, I'm just curious. And it's about to, I think, go kind of south on him when who does he see but Casey? Casey. Now, one thing about the book is the structure of the book has changed, or the structure of the movie has changed from the book. Mm -hmm. And so when this happens in the book, it's been months since he saw Casey. Oh, right. Whereas in the movie, it seems like a couple couple of days, which I think is a little bit problematic. And Casey seems to be in charge of what is a strike, Mm -hmm. is that, and he says, Looky, Tom. We come here to work. They tell us it's going to be five cents, but there's a whole lot of us. So the man says two and a half cents. And of course, a man can't eat on two and a half cents, can't feed a family on two and a half cents a box. What Casey says is that's a ton of peaches moved for a dollar. Right. A ton of peaches. Now they're paying you five cents. But if they bust this strike, you think they'll pay five? No, paying five now. They'll get two and a half cents just the minute we're gone. That way you can't even buy enough food to keep you alive. Tell them to come out with us, Tom. Them peaches is ripe. 
two days out and they'll pay us, pay us all five, maybe seven. But if you don't come out and they break the strike, you, they're going to be paying you two and a half cents. Right. And, you know, this is the t- Tom's going, they're paying five cents now. Yeah. You know, kids are hungry. Yeah. Rosa Sharon, she's pregnant. She's got to have food. You know, get, you know, the baby's life depends upon this. Mm-hmm. You know, what's Pa going to say? Pa's going to say that's none of our business. And again, we go to the kids standing around looking at Ma who are hungry. Yeah. When do you take care of yourself and when do you take care of other people? And also you look at the delivering, uh, the delivering of the message. Who's the one delivering the message? It's Casey, who has no family attachments. No. Who has nothing else to worry about. That's looks a great like, point. Right? Looks like most of those people there, they're at that, uh, say, that little small encampment that they're at. They don't have anybody else either. And so it's easier for them to ask the person who has more to lose to sacrifice, right? So it's, I think that's a, a, a difficult conversation and a complex conversation to have. At what point is, am I risking more to be part of your movement than you are? Well, and this is the struggle with the labor movement throughout history. Yeah. And and if you look at... Because most labor organizers are not people who have right. multiple families or have like big families, right? Or can run that kind of thing. Most of them are, they go from town to town, like we saw in uh, Norma Ray. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, you know, the strike means letting your kids not have food, right. not have new clothes. Taking the risk. Taking yep. the risk. You're going to lose your insurance. You're going to lose everything. Right. And, you know, there's a lot of complicated feelings about organized labor today, um, but without the labor movement, there'd be no minimum wage. Yep. There'd be no 40 hour week there. We'd still have child labor. We'd still have all these unsafe work environments. Right. And so there's a, you know, somewhere, as I would always say, a balance to be struck. Mm-hmm. And at least at this moment in the grapes of wrath, that balance is out of whack. Yeah. And as they're trying to convince Tom to come out, some guy at the tent flap is hearing something. Yep. And then Tom hears something and sounds like a bunch of guys moving towards us and they try to get out flashlights spot Casey. There he is, the one in the middle, the skinny one. Chuck, Alec, get him! And at this point, they figure Casey is the man because he's the guy who talks the most. They come in at Casey and their clubs are raised and Casey says, listen, you fellas, you don't know what you're doing. You're helping to starve kids. You fellas, you don't know what you're doing. You're helping to starve kids. Ah, shut up, you dirty Yeah. And they kill him. This to me is forgive them, father, for they know not what they do. Mm. I mean, this is his last words, or you yeah. don't know what you're doing. Yeah. You're helping. Yeah. You're separating kids. Yeah. You don't know what you're doing, separating kids from their family, dooming them to death. And a guy raises up a club and hits Casey, and very quickly we understand they killed him. Yeah. And Tom grabs a club and he hits a guy. Yep. And we understand fairly quickly he killed that guy. Yeah. And Tom gets hit and he runs away. And we hear. Briefly, like, do you get a look at his face? And he's like, well, I hit him. I know you, this guy's going to have a scar. Yeah. It's interesting. You know who one of the people that love this movie is, of course, Cesar Chavez. Oh, yeah. That makes and, sense. And Cesar Chavez said that that reading Grapes of Wrath was like re- reliving his life. Yeah. Because that is poor white people at that time. Yep. And then you could easily put this on poor black people who uh, who, who work in this country and do this Latinos who came to this country and did the picking and all that kind of the fruit that's still going on now. Yep. So the correlations are very, very, uh, very potent still. Well, here's the thing Steinbeck said. Steinbeck said that that he thought poor white people and poor minorities had far more in common mm-hmm. than poor white people had to rich white people. Yeah. But, <laughs> yes. But rich white people had a strong interest to never let those groups come together. Mm-hmm. And if you look at our country right now, that is certainly the same thing is happening. Is oh, that, absolutely. Is that poor white people are pitted against poor minorities mm-hmm. in the way our country is working right now. Yeah, which is unfortunate because the, the 
poor rich people. Uh, the poor float, rich people? I mean, the, the <laughs> rich white people float the illusion that you could be them at some point. Yep. So Tom stumbles back and Moss sees him and we hear sirens. And the next morning, they're essentially keeping this like a camp, you know, like uh, they've got lookouts and mm-hmm. Tom is, his face is bloody. His cheek is hurt. Mm-hmm. And they realize that they got to sneak him out. Yeah. Because there's a posse out looking for him and they know that he's gotten scarred. And Tom's trying to explain that they killed Casey first and, and Moss says, that's not how they told it. Yep. Of course not. Um, that to me struck me this time as I was, as I was watching it. Like those are the people who go, Oh, there's more to this story. When they see videos of, of people doing terrible things to people who are uh, handcuffed or people who are, you know, when people are abusing their power towards other citizens, right? Some people will police other things. Like I, there's all these people that go, Oh, there's more to the, look. There's, there's something happened before this video, which, which you see. And I'm like, whatever happened, it, you never find out what the extra thing is that caused these kinds of things. Same thing. They manipulate the story. They twist the story in this way. And you see this. The people in power twist the story so that they don't seem like they're uh, as evil as they actually are. And they, that way you don't rile up people to come against that situation. It's it's unfortunate. Well, I think, I'm just trying to think of how I want to frame what I'm about to say, is that, first of all, I think... There frequently is more to stories mm-hmm. all the time. Things are complicated. We, when you see a video of something, you actually don't see all the circumstances. As a person who's professionally edited video, I know that like mm-hmm. there are things in one shot that you might not see from another shot or things that can be taken out of context. That And, and that knowledge that things can be more complicated than they seem mm-hmm. is frequently used by the powers that be to right. to to make something which seems fairly obvious yeah. seem more complicated. That's a better way to put it. And in this case, you know, cut I'll cut everything I said out. I'll put that in. No, I don't want to do that because then, because <laughs> then the thing that I said wouldn't make sense. Oh, fair, all right, fine. <laughs> um, um, the uh, uh, and in this case, obviously they are lying because we saw it. Right, C- Casey was killed first. That is the truth. Yeah, and P- Tom says I got to go away. You know. I can't bring this on the family. And mom won't let him go. And she says, and this is just powerful. We're cracking up, Tom. We ain't no family now. And Rosa Sharon, she's going to have her baby, but it won't have no family. And Winfield, what's he going to be this way? Grown up, wild, just like animals. Got nothing to trust. Don't go, Tom. Stay and help. Help me. And the way she says help me, that is powerful. Yeah. Can you say no to your mom when she says help you? No. I mean, that's the thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. You can't. Nope. And Tom knows he should go. Mm-hmm. And, th- and this is, you know, they don't have good, there aren't good choices here. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and he says, Okay. And he says, I shouldn't. I know I shouldn't, but okay. And now we hear more people coming in. More people coming in to pick peaches. Right. And the guy who comes in says, what are you paying? And they say, two and a half cents. Two and a half? Say, mister, a man can't make his dinner on that. Take it or leave it. There are 200 men coming in from the south that'll be glad to get it. And he's going to take the two and a half cents. Because they broke the strike. Yep. Because by killing Casey, they did that. Yep. Yep. Before we leave the camp, 
I yep. want to read something to you. The number on their place is 63. Mm-hmm. The, in numerology, the number 63 is the number of humanitarianism, family, and idealism. Wow. That's interesting. I didn't know that. It's an affinity for family and creative self-expression. Huh. So I don't know if that thought was in the process when they chose 63. I don't know if Steinbeck, I don't know if 63 in the Steinbeck novel, but all I can tell you is what that number symbolizes. And I find it would be a crazy coincidence if that isn't something there. There, there are some things where I do say things are crazy coincidence. Yeah. I, in this case, I'm kind of tempted to believe it because I know there's deep, complicated biblical mm-hmm. and uh, literary and artistic references within Steinbeck's work. Yeah, um, I just read, which I'd never read before, Winter of Our Disconnect, Discontent, oh. which is his last book. Mm-hmm. This is really good. And it is poetry and, you know, I mean, it is it is deep. There's a lot of deep. He's a, Steinbeck is a deep guy. Yeah. Um, which is obviously why I'm, I'm drawn to that intellectual mm-hmm. analysis and yeah, the, the the poetry of him and all that stuff is very fascinating to me. Um, they're loading up the truck and they're gonna hide Tom in the in underneath some mattresses and stuff mm-hmm. in the truck, which doesn't look that comfy. And they drive him out and they keep asking about as they're driving out. Everyone's asking like, "Have you seen a guy with a scar on his face?" They're asking, "Where was that? Wasn't there another guy with you?" Because of course they counted the people coming in. And they go, yeah. "Oh, just some hitchhiker." You mean the little guy with the pale face? <laughs> he does a really great job with that. He does. And they make it out of camp. Yeah. Unfortunately, they don't drive that far because the fan belt goes on the car. Yeah. yeah. And th- this time, maybe we're not going to get that car running. I mean, and it's funny in the book, they do a lot to keep this truck running. I'm sure through the whole thing, uh, and you l- learn a lot more about this character of Al in the in the book than you do in the movie. And they look down the hill and they see there's some lights up ahead, and maybe we can just coast down the hill. Yeah. And they coast down the hill to the government camp. Yeah. The weed patch camp. Which John Ford does an interesting job of going into close-up, Department of Agriculture. That's supposed to mean something, right? It's the government camp. Well, and it's because this is a real camp. Yeah. Not only was it a real camp, it still exists today. Whoa. Weed patch camp is still outside of Bakersfield, and it is still a, a camp for migrant workers. Wow. Yeah. Is there still dances on Saturday night? I don't know that. <laughs> Could maybe find out. I would like to find out. Um, and and when John Steinbeck went to do research, he went to the Weed Patch Camp in Bakersfield, and he met this guy Tom Collins. And Tom Collins was is who the book is dedicated to. Oh, and he's really a hero of a lot of these people. He helped a lot of people at this time. Hmm. And and the camp that they pull into is clean and organized, and they are welcomed. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, it costs a dollar a week or you can work it off. That's the first real clue. Yeah. You know, work it off by cleaning up garbage, cleaning up the camp and keeping things nice. And they go, oh, we're going to work it off. Mm -hmm. And they mention the sanitary units. Well, what are those? Well, those are, you know, toilets and showers and Mm -hmm. running water and wash basins. And they say, you know, the the ladies committee is going to come talk to Ma and explain everything. And the committee sets all the rules. And they ask about cops. Cops can't come in here without a warrant. Right. And they say, well, who's on these committees? And it goes, well, it's just voted on by the people here, and they make their own rules, and that's what goes. And the the stunned reaction yeah. that our guys have is profound. Yeah. And I thought a lot about what does it mean to treat someone with respect, mm-hmm. with dignity, human dignity. And these people haven't been treated with dignity in right. a long time. Right. Working on the decency. Yeah. And they, we even hear this thing that they have dances yep. on Saturday nights, the best dances in town. And what's interesting, this is the main structural change of the book. Because in the book, the government camp comes before 
the peaches. Yeah. Um, and so what that means is, is that Casey gets arrested. Then we go to the government camp and we have other stuff happen. And then we go to the peaches and Casey, and then we see Casey again. So it's been several months. Oh. And the reason they made the change is that they wanted to end on a slightly happier note right. and not to have the happier note in the middle and then get really bleak at the end. <laughs> and I understand it. Novels I, can do that. Yeah, I, I, I understand that. <laughs> 70s um, films can do that. But and, it, <laughs> and there's a great moment when Tom walks away from you know meeting, he's alone, and he's walked away from meeting the camp manager, yeah. and there's a, a spigot with running water and a sign next to the spigot that says, please turn the water off and keep our camp clean or something like that. And a woman is using it and she walks away and leaves the spigot running. And Tom walks up and he holds his hand under the running water and then he turns it off. Mm -hmm. And I just think that's sort of a, it's a lovely moment Mm -hmm. because it's the experience of like, oh, I'm in a place that has running water, which I haven't had forever. I don't think his house had running water. And the knowledge of Keep the camp clean. Yeah. You have this nice thing, take care of it. Yeah. Um, but also the symbolism of water is salvation. Oh, that's a great point. Cleaning as washing what it out, right? What a great point. Yeah, Absolutely. Mm. Well, and, and the thing too, I think about those two guys in white going, how can they live like that? Right. Well, they don't have running water, you asshole. Mm-hmm. Is that you would be stinky and if you couldn't wash your clothes, you know, and here yeah. now they have it. And the next day we wake up in this place and, and the kids go off to check out the sanitary unit (laughs) and they've never seen stuff like this before. They've never seen the sink with running water. And then you hear, you know, them flush the toilet and run away because they think they broke it because they haven't had this before. Um, We're out actually doing some work and they're working out in the field and a farmer comes up to them and says, listen here, maybe I'm going to talk myself out of my farm, but I like you fellas. You're good workers. So I'm going to tell you. You live over in the government camp, don't you? Yes, sir. And you have dances over there every Saturday night. We sure do. Well, look out next Saturday night. They're coming to start a riot at the next dance Saturday night. Because the thing is, the deputies and the cops can't come into the camp without a warrant. But if they start a riot, if there's a big fight, then they can charge in and they can take down the camp. Mm-hmm. Um, Once again, people in authority yeah. manipulating a situation. Well, and what's interesting is this farmer feels pressure if he tells them this, he doesn't want this to happen. Right. He's on their side, but yep. they might shut down his farm right. if he tells them, because he's a small farmer. Did you recognize the committee head? No. That's Ernie the cab driver. Oh, really? Yes, you're right. It is. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, Whatever Bert and Ernie show up in a movie, I'm always happy. I'm always <laughs> I <think> so. <laughs> um, and, and it's funny, too, because there's this thing of, I remember reading a book, and it was talking about slavery, and it and sort of proposed the question of, if you had slaves on the big plantation, a big wealthy plantation, or the real small one where there was one guy you know, who had one slave, who was treated better? Hmm. And the, instinctually, I would go like, oh, well, the wealthy plantation, they have so much money, they would be able to afford to take better care of people. Hmm. And of course, it was statistically always the opposite, because the farmer who had one slave, and this is not in any way saying there's anything good about slavery, right, but, right. but the farmer who had one slave, he was working side by side with hmm. the slave in the fields. Right. And so... They were much closer to equal. And so he saw him as human. Right. Whereas the big plantation, well, they were in a big house. They didn't. They weren't anywhere near them, so they could treat them terribly. This farmer, particularly in the book, he's working side by side with them. So he sees them as people. He likes them. Right. He doesn't want to see this happen to him, so he gives them a warning. It's a big dance. Uh, And they're checking people in through a gate. Um, Al's going around, (laughs) talks to some girls, (laughs) goes up to one and... Mom says she spoke for. <laughs> right. Um, 
And some men come up. They look kind of mean to the gate. They got hats on. They ask who invited you. And they say, oh, fellow named Jackson. And they let him in. But they're looking at these guys. Them's our fellows. Yep. Um, they just got a feeling. So they're going to go talk to Jackson and find out if he knows, the, if he knows these guys. Uh, Al goes up to another girl, says hello. She says hello. <laughs> then a big man comes out of that tent and he says... So long. So long. <laughs> uh, Mon, Rose, and Sharon are sitting at this dance. Those those men, the dangerous men, kind of come up behind them. They ask some guys, ask Jackson, you know those guys? And he's like, I know one of those guys, but I didn't invite him. Yeah. So now we know these are the guys coming to break up the dance. Right. To start a riot, to create mm-hmm. a commotion. Yep. On purpose. Um, we're inside a tent with, I guess, is the committee, and, the, and some guy runs in and says, yeah, there are deputies waiting out on the road to come in. They got axe handles. They got guns. Mm-hmm. And someone says, well, maybe we should get our own axe handles. And they go, no, that's exactly what they want. And we talk about, if we start a fight, the deputies will come. If you got to sock them, sock them where they don't bleed. Yep. And this is a scary moment. The song ends. Tom comes over uh, to Ma and Rose and Sharon. <laughs> One of the girls Al had been talking to comes to get him. Mm-hmm. And they start dancing. Um, very, very closely. And Tom asks Mom to dance. Come on, Mom. Let's dance. Oh, Tom, I can and again, the song is Red River Valley. And the, the joy as Tom dances with Ma and then sings to her is lovely. Come and sit by my side if you love me. Do not hasten to bid me adieu. But remember the Red River Valley and the boy who has loved you so true. Her heart is breaking at the same time yeah. for what they'd lost. Well, and I think for what they're going to lose. Possibly, yeah. Because I think she knows he can't stay with them. Oh, you think? I do. Interesting. I do. That's my feeling That's watching this point. moment. It's a good point. But it's so loving and yeah. joyful in this moment. Mm-hmm. And outside, the deputies look at their watch and say, it's 929. Right. Let's go. Because... 9.30 is when the riot's going to start. And we see our guys, they look at her watch and say, it's 9.30. And they try to start a fight, and man, they get swept out of that place instantly. It's fantastic. It is fantastic. Agreed. Yeah. It is great. They're just like, they have no chance. As soon as they start to do something, they're just grabbed and pulled away mm-hmm. very quietly. Mm-hmm. The dance keeps going because everyone there knows. Yeah. Keep the dance. If the dance stops, the deputies might come in. So the right. dance keeps going. The deputies come up to the gate and say, we're here. We're here. There's a riot. <laughs> We got to stop it. How would you hear there's a riot? Yeah. How and, in the fuck would you hear there's a riot? And there's the camp manager who goes, there's no riot here. Points yeah. over, the dance is still going. And I love this moment, is that the guy in charge starts to look at his watch. Yeah. And the camp manager sees him looking at the watch. Right. And he sees that that guy's looking. <laughs> at the, it's like, well, if you're looking at your watch, then this must have been your plan to start the riot. And exactly. he puts his hand. It's great. It's great. It's great. Unfortunately, late that night, men with flashlights come in to look at license plates. Mm-hmm. Tom wakes up, he sees them, he sees them taking down his license plate, and he knows they're going to come get him. He gets his stuff together, looks down at Ma, kneels down to go out of the tent, and Ma says, Tommy, ain't you going to tell me goodbye? And he says, Ma, come outside. And he looks down at his paw, and he kisses paw on the forehead. Mm -hmm. Do you think he's ever kissed his father before? No. I don't think so either. Yeah. Maybe as, as a child. Yeah. And this is the scene. This is one of those famous movie scenes. I could hide you, Tommy. I know you would, Ma, but I ain't going to let you. 
You hide somebody that's killed a guy, and you're in trouble, too. All right, Tommy. And she knows. Yeah. She knows that's what's right. And she asks him what he's going to do, and he's thinking about Casey. About what he said, what he done, about how he died. And I remember all of it. He says, Casey was a lantern. He helped me to see he was a lantern. I've been thinking about us, too. About our people living like pigs and good, rich land laying fallow. Or maybe one guy with a million acres and 100,000 farmers starving. By the way, you know who that one man with a million acres is? Who? It's very clear in the book. William Randolph Hearst. Wow. Yeah. Because when in the book, they talk about it several times. Huh. There's some guy with a million acres up the coast who knows movie stars and stuff, and he's not doing anything with his land. Wow. Yeah. And I've been wondering if all our folks got together and yelled. Oh, Tommy, they'd drive you out and cut you down just they like they've done to Casey. They'd drive me anyways. Sooner or later, they'd get me for one thing, if not for another. And she thinks he's going to talking about killing somebody. And that's not what Tom's about. Like this, he's not, he hasn't become mean mad. Mm -hmm. He's mad, but he's thinking about something else. He says, it's just as long as I'm an outlaw, maybe I can do something. Maybe I can just find out something. That's the same thing Casey was talking about. Mm -hmm. Find out something. Maybe find out what it is that's wrong. And see if there ain't something can be done about it. Ain't thought it all clear, Ma. I can't. I don't know enough. Again, that sounds like Casey. I don't know enough. Mm -hmm. And the thing that Ma is facing is that she's not going to know what happens to him. Right. If he dies, she's not going to know. And Tom says, well, maybe it's like Casey says. Fella ain't got a soul of his own, just a little piece of a big soul. The one big soul that belongs to everybody. Then. Then what, Tom? And then we get the speech. Then it don't matter. I'll be all around in the dark. I'll be everywhere. Wherever you can look. Wherever there's a fight so hungry people can eat, I'll be there. Wherever there's a cop beating up a guy, I'll be there. I'll be in the way guys yell when they're mad. I'll be in the way kids laugh when they're hungry and they know supper's ready. And when the people are eating the stuff they raise and living in the houses they build. I'll be there, too. I put this speech, for some reason, I was associated with the I could have been a contender speech. I don't know why. They're completely oh, different. <laughs> they have nothing to do with each other, except they have these great, profound speeches of classic Hollywood films. I don't. There's not a reason to put them together at all. But in my mind, I, I don't know, maybe rhythmically or something. Okay. Um, Interestingly enough, Ford would not let them rehearse this scene. They were desperate to rehearse it. And he said, no. And they said, well, we'll go rehearse. You don't have to be there. We're just going to run the lines. He said, no. He wouldn't let them do it. And the reason was, was he said they, they were bursting with suppressed emotion when they finally did it on camera. Yeah. It's an interesting technique. It's a risky technique, and it works. Well, it, it is. Works. It works. Well, it's, it's an amazing speech. Yeah. And then she, Ma says, we're not the kissing kind. But she's probably never going to see him again. Right. And they kiss. And Tom walks away. Beautiful shot of him walking off the hill in the distance. Mm -hmm. I love that he walks away. 
across the dance floor in the light. Yeah. And then into the darkness. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Their last chance of knowing him, of seeing him. And this was to be the end of the film. It should have been the end of the film. And Ford, you know, finishes work on it. He goes off on another movie. And Zanuck says, it's too depressing. <laughs> and he calls up Ford and Ford can't come back. And so Zanuck directs the final scene. What? Yeah. And that everyone's packing up because they got some work and they get in the cars to leave. Yeah. Everyone's real excited. It's going to be 20 days of work. Ma says, well, maybe it's 20 days and maybe not. We don't know till we get it. And they ask, what's the matter, Ma? Are you scared? Scared? <laughs> I ain't never going to be scared no more. Come on, Stone. For a while, it looked as though we was beat. Good and beat. Made me feel kind of bad and scared, too. And Pa says, you're the one who keeps us going. He's like, I don't know how to do it anymore. Mm. And her response is interesting, which is she kind of says, A woman can change better than a man. A man lives sort of, well, in jerks. Baby's born or somebody dies and that's a jerk. He gets a farm or loses it and, and that's a jerk. With a woman, it's all in one flow like a stream. Little eddies and waterfalls, but the river, it goes right on. I don't know what that means exactly, but it's sort of an interesting line. Um, I'll tell you what it means. Sure. Men live in jerks, right? Yeah. So sustained so, moments right. of quick, of intense, intense action. Intense action. Yeah. Exactly. But women have to roll with everything because uh, a lot of the times they have to be the stability and the rock yeah. in the family. I think that is what it is. Yeah. 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 And Ma is certainly the rock. And the last thing she says is... Rich fellas come up and they die and... Their kids ain't no good and they die out. But we keep a coming. We're the people that live. They can't wipe us out. They can't lick us. We'll go on forever, Pa, because we're the people. That's the end of the film. I don't feel like you don't like this ending. I don't. I don't. I think it's unnecessary. And... Because what Tom says at the end is is powerful enough, you know, and I, I think it's like it's like that ending for Taxi Driver. I don't need that ending where he sees himself and he's picking up Sybil Shepherd and you see the red. I don't need any of right. that. Uh, and I think this film ends perfectly with him walking off because once again, it mirrors uh, the beginning, which is him walking in alone, solo down the road, yeah. and he goes back being solo down the road. And I think that would have been a great ending to uh, but going this route i just thought i get why but i to me it doesn't feel like the best ending for the movie the most authentic ending for the right. movie i guess i totally agree yeah i i think it seems a little hokey yeah in a way that we haven't been up to this point not at all yeah. through the whole movie what, what's hard for me is of course because i've read the book yeah is it's the ending of the book that is not here right uh, which is so what happens is is tom leaves and then they go off to find some more work and they get caught in a huge like rainstorm, like there's a flood. Mm-hmm. And a bunch of both the Jode family and men from other families are working desperately to stop something from flooding. I don't remember exactly the circumstances. Mm-hmm. And Rosa Sharon and um, Ma go to hide up and out in like an old train car. Um, and Rosa Sharon's going into labor. And so Ma while the men are struggling to survive and they haven't had a whole lot of food ma and of course remember this is the government camp was a long time ago this is they've just left the the peach place and some other bad camps and ma's desperately trying to deliver this baby 
and they deliver the baby and it's stillborn. Jesus. And at that moment, as she's in labor, an old man and his son come in also to take shelter because the old man is dying. Right. He's sick. He's dying of starvation. And as they sit and they mourn the loss of this baby, the old man maybe is in his last moments. And the son says, please, do you have anything to eat? He's dying. He's starving. And Rosa, Sharon, and Ma look at each other. Then they nod and she walks towards him and she slowly unbuttons her blouse. And the old man looks up and struggles, says no, no, but he's too weak to stop her. Uh-huh. And in the last moments of the book, Grapes of Wrath, Rosa Sharon breastfeeds a starving old man. Wow. It is the most profound image of compassion and humanness I can think of in any book I've ever read. Oh, interesting. I mean, that image of a woman who's just lost her child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And has her milk and uses it to save the life of an old man Mm -hmm. that she's never met before. Like, Mm -hmm. this is a stranger to her. That's there's something in that. Wow. And and this is a part of why the book was banned. Right. Um, and it's also obvious why they couldn't put this in the movie right. in nineteen forty. Yeah. I understand it, but that image that is haunting. Yeah. You know. I I and the fact that the old man resists, mm-hmm. you know, and that Ma and Rosa Sharon know that this is what must happen. Right. And it is that is this like human compassion for each other in the most extreme of circumstances, you know? So that ending always sits with me. Mm. Even if I'm watching this film, yeah. I'm kind of with you. The film should sort of, I would rather it end with Tom Joad, right. but then I have this image in my head also. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about the reception. This movie is a huge hit, mm-hmm. both critically and financially. Uh, it's nominated for actor for best actor for editing picture sound and uh, screenplay. Uh, it won for supporting actress mm-hmm. for Jane, Jane Darwell. Ford won Best Director, mm-hmm. but it did not win Best Picture. Uh, best Picture that year is Rebecca. Oh, yeah. The hits um, which I've seen, but only a long time ago. Yeah. I, I don't know it very well. Mm. Um, and Jimmy Stewart beat Henry Fonda for Best Actor for Philadelphia Story, which is really a lot of people think that was his consolation prize for not winning the previous year for Mr. Smith, oh, which yeah. he lost to Clark Gable in Gone with the Wind. That's ridiculous. I love Clark Gable. Too. Don't get me wrong. But that's ridiculous. Well, Gone with the Wind is clearly a bigger movie in terms of its success. Yeah. Um, it might be the bit most successful movie of all time, but I think way. it is still yeah. with uh, adjusted, adjusted for, yeah, yeah. for inflation. Um, but yeah, I, you know, well, you and I both love Mr. Smith much more than uh, Gone <laughs> no. with the Wind. I think we've sort of reached the place of discussing our final thoughts. Okay. Which I'm trying to put in order after all of this. Okay. Uh, do you have yours or you want me to go first? Yeah, sure. I'll go first. Uh, since this film means a bit more to you, you should go last. Um, here's what I would say. If you've never seen the movie or if you've only seen the movie once, judging, if you're a consumer of anything that's happening in our pop culture politically, and I don't know how you can't be nowadays, the film resonates. And it should be a lesson for you that no matter what happens in humanity, no matter how many generations come and go, decades, centuries come and go, The issues are always the same. The issues of judgment before knowledge, of fear, of anger, of people in power abusing that power because humans are flawed. So it's irrelevant what position you hold in society. There's still people in that position who are abusing that position. That's just life. 
And so this is what this film shows you, that the, the human struggle is eternal, universal, and we all go through it depending on the generation. And you can make the symbolism connect to whatever is happening in any decade in the world, and not just in America, but in the world. And I think that's what is so powerful about this film and the message about it, human message, not lefty, not righty, not red or whatever, the human message that we that is from Jesus Christ himself saying, you must take care of your brother. What you do for the least of my brothers as you do unto me. Why do we forget that lesson when money gets involved, when property gets involved, when the potential to lose a little bit extra gets involved? That's what this movie really exposes. And, you know, in a little, in, in a way to me, I put, uh, Steve has his perception. I kind of, I see Casey more as John the Baptist and mm. Henry Fonda as the Jesus it's a character. Totally, totally arguable. Absolutely. Just because the way he gets killed is a headshot. Just like Baptist is sure. decapitated. And so... Well, this, and he literally baptized Tom. And he literally baptized Tom. Yeah, so to me, that's what... I think he's more the Jesus character. That's Because he's point. on the journey. So, yeah, the, but, the, you know... Uh, but I see why you would feel that way about Casey, honestly. And so, this is what's so great about the film. And I really didn't... And it's depressing, and I hated Steve for making me watch it, because it hurt me, because I see this happening now in our world, and it's heartbreaking. And to see a film that still captures it, that the same thing was going on back in 1940 and has been going on for uh, decades in this country is heartbreaking. But there is positivity in the film as well. There's humanity in the film as well. No matter how dire the circumstances, there are still people willing to help, willing to give uh, of their last that they have, and including in the book, giving her breast milk to the starving old man. And so that is a powerful message as well. Um, First of all, that's all great. I, I, it's funny. I'm very passionate. I was very passionate about wanting to do this film. Mm. And then last night I was going, man, how am I going to talk about this? Cause there's so much that I want to say. Mm. And the thing that I keep thinking about now is the way I was raised. I was raised about as far from the Jodes as you possibly can. Mm. And yet through this book and through this film, I understand them and feel them and feel part of that family. And that to me is the magic of art Mm. is that it can do this profound thing, which is to take us out of our world, take us out of our skin and put us with people that are very different from us Mm. and make you go, that's me. And the first step I think to solving some of these problems for me starts with compassion and starts with empathy is that you can have all sorts of opinions on labor or immigration or poverty or minimum wage or race or any of these issues. Mm. And, and, and they're supportable, but I believe that the first thing you must start with is the effort to empathize. Mm -hmm. The first thing you must start with is how would I feel if I was them? This movie makes you feel with people that maybe aren't like you. And, once you do that, I think you are changed. I think the way you look at the world has changed. And I think it's important, even though, yeah, this movie's hard, you know, and I know it was hard for you, but I think it's important to do that sometimes, to touch base again with humanity that's not like you and to feel those feelings so that we can be compassionate, so that we can be kinder, so that we can be gentler and more forgiving of people that maybe seem very different from us. Yeah. And that's what I think about Grapes of Wrath. 
And of course, we'd love to hear what you think about Grapes of Wrath. <laughs> yes. If you want to leave us a message on our Facebook page, just do search for The Cinephiles. Please subscribe to us on iTunes, where we'd love to hear your reviews. Please subscribe on YouTube, where we want to see your comments. You can look for us in all sorts of other places, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn. If you want to suggest a film, you can do so on our Patreon page. Just join patreon.com slash The Cinephiles. And as always, you can reach me on Twitter on at SR Morris. John, where can they reach you? You can always reach me at The Roca Says, R-O-C-H-A, on Twitter and Instagram. See all the stuff that I've got going on in my life there. Uh, and I think that is it for this week. We will see you next time for hopefully a more uplifting <laughs> film yes. on The Cinephiles. <laughs> <laughs>